the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machine Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, just wanted to let you guys know we have a Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Please consider sending us a buck a month to help support the show. Today, we have Vernon Sisney, who is a prolific author on... Deleuze, Foucault, Derrida, and the book we are primarily discussing is his book, Deleuze and Derrida, Difference and the Power of the Negative. Vern, I've been reading your, your works. Do you mind if I call you Vern? I feel bad. No, no, that Vern's fine. Yeah. Okay. Vern's fine. I've been been reading through uh, the book that I told you about, uh, obviously. I read the uh, I read your essay on, I'll you know, be quick, say Bergson and Deleuze. Obviously, there was more uh, on duration and eminence, which I also thought was helpful and ties into your book very well. But I did want to ask kind of, kind of what the, the question that I always ask people and because I'm so curious, we all have our stories. Do you have kind of a story how you got into philosophy and obviously Deleuze and Derrida? Was it, was it an encounter in undergraduate school? How did it kind of come about for you? Yeah. So how much do you want me to talk? Well, I personally love it when our guests talk. I know that Cooper and I both we welcome. I you like to- it when our I like it when our guests talk a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we we want to we want more Vern. Yeah, that's so the just, that's the whole. Uh, yeah. How much so, do you, I mean? As much as you feel. Yeah. Whatever like, uh, you. I can always. I always edit. You know. I'll edit down. Okay. Whatever okay. you want me to. If you have something you want me to cut out, just let me know, etc. But I usually do a pretty good. I take good care of the the people okay. on the pod when it comes to content. Mm-hmm. This is the other country aspect of me is that I can talk for like ever. We and love so, that. That's, okay. that's, that's the place for it. Well, yeah, exactly. so in response to the question, it's so I think it's come up on Twitter that I was raised in an evangelical home Same. Uh, with e- evangelical father. Well, and my parents were separated, but my mom was still very, you know, the De- point devout. I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Very devout in a certain sense. I, she didn't care if I watched, you know. <laughs> you know, R-rated movies and stuff like my dad did. But when it came to like her beliefs, like evolution was a lie, Mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of things. And so there were just, you know, we were just supposed to accept so many things without question. And, and that's something I always had a problem with. So like, even when I was young, I remember asking some questions that like, and my dad would give answers and I was just kind of like, well, that doesn't really make much sense, you know? (laughs) And so it just kind of stuck in my craw for a long time. And, uh, that may not be super satisfying, though, as, as an answer, because in a certain sense, you know, some people are indoctrinated and then they just accept it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas I, I just for some reason, certain things just never sat right with me. So there was that dimension of it. There was also and this is a, a kind of an embarrassing story. But when I was about 15, I got really heavily interested in the music of The Doors and yeah. st- started reading a lot of biographies about Jim Morrison 
And I know this is I great. Had, I also- had, I, no, I had this arc too. Trust me, I had this arc. I actually, <laughs> I, mean, I think we all have this arc. I love the movie. I actually love the Doors movie. That fucking uh, what's his name? Val Kilmer. Kilmer. Yeah, yeah, Val Kilmer, Kilmer was a great fucking. He, yeah, was he that was that Oliver Stone? Was. Yeah, yeah you're that. Oliver Stone. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Val Kilmer is, is. Oh yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Kyle McLaughlin played Robbie. That's right. Or not? <laughs> no, he, he played, played uh, Raymond Zarek. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the guy that played Robbie was also the guy that played—I can't remember his name—but he was in Pulp Fiction. He played okay. Brett in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I read a bunch of biographies of Jim Morrison and and got really interested in the intellectual influences. And so I bought the works of Rambeau and the works of Blake and the works of Nietzsche, the works of Huxley, and things like this. That's awesome. I had no idea what I was doing at the time, right? But but then you know this is where the evangelical dimension comes back in because then I'm I buy the portable Nietzsche and I'm looking through the contents and it's like mm-hmm. the Antichrist. Yeah. I was like, oh, I know all about that guy, you know. Right, so, right, right. That's so, great. so I turn and I start I start reading the Antichrist and I remember like the second the second aphorism in the Antichrist or the second section of the Antichrist is like what is good that which you know heightens man that which ennobles mm. that which empowers that which you know heightens man's will to power what what is bad, everything that weakens, debases, all of this stuff. In short, everything that has hitherto been called morality. And I was just like, I remember reading large passages of this with my jaw just hanging wide open. Yeah. And I was like, I didn't even know it was possible to think stuff like this, much less mm. to write stuff like this. And so I got really hooked. And then I, I ended up going to a... Um, it was a young leaders conference, if you can imagine that. And yes, Washington- I, I've been to those. I've been to one oh, of those. Oh, have you really? Yep, yeah, in yep. D.C. And I was roomed with this guy and I was wearing a Doors t-shirt. And so he struck up this conversation based on my t-shirt. And it turned out that we had come from or we had extremely similar interests. It's just that I had come from a very low income background and he had come from an affluent background. So he had gone to a private high school and had taken a philosophy class. And so when we were talking about Nietzsche, he was like, oh, well, then you need to read, you know, Camus and Sartre and all this stuff and turn me on to it. So I, I went back home and I bought all these books and and then that's kind of, you know, where the, where it all started. I love that in the story you get a furtherance of your quote unquote bad influence from someone at a young leaders conference, (laughs) right? That is, they think, they think they are like protecting you and furthering your morality, but little do they know. (laughs) Yeah. We had these long conversations about Nietzsche and Rambeau and, and Blake. And, and then he was telling me in his classes, this is actually something I'm going to do in my first year seminar next year that they had watched Pink Floyd's the wall and had read Mm -hmm. Sartre's, the wall, you know, the little collection mm-hmm. of short stories. And, uh, and I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. You know? And I was a big Pink Floyd fan as well. And I didn't know that there was that connection at all. And, um, wait, so, they did that in his, in his high school class, in they his high it? school, in his private high school class. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That, that's awesome. <laughs> this is what yeah. I mean. He came from affluence. And so, you know, he got that sort of class. We didn't have anything like that in my high school, you know. So yeah, philosophy um, was nowhere near my my high school. Yeah. Uh, we got yeah. the and we got the Ayn Rand book. Oh, that's almost worse, right? Grader. That's almost worst. That's what we had too. The one text in my high school that everyone had to read was Ayn Rand's Anthem. Oh no, God. no matter which I actually path you like in. that book. Actually, I actually Did, I don't I remember do like it. that book. I don't remember it, but I I remember having to read it as a high school sophomore. I think. Active forgetting, active forgetting. Now her other books are dog shit. (laughs) Well, see, you know, that's funny because I haven't read Anthem. I've read 
Fountainhead. Her two, her two big novels, Fountainhead, Fountainhead and, and Atlas Shrugged. I, yeah. I tried. I it was so. I, yeah, I, I actually I kind of like Fountainhead, even though it has very problematic aspects to it. You know that Friendship we'll leave out for for now. Her fantasies, let's say, right, that she writes into her female characters. You know, there's some bad stuff, but I didn't know about her objectivism until like much later. So. So yeah, that's that's how I got into it. In terms of how I got into Derrida and Deleuze, that's a good question. So in my <coughs> undergraduate education, we encountered Derrida one time, and it was in a it was like a 20th century, it was basically like a continental philosophy, like yeah. late 20th century continental philosophy. And we read, you know, we we read late Heidegger, we read Rorty, we read Lyotard, we read some Foucault, and we read a little bit of Derrida. We did not read any Deleuze in that class, but we did read a little bit of Derrida. And I was really blown away by it, but it didn't quite get its hooks in me. But it was actually in undergrad that Deleuze started to get his hooks in me. And I had written a, I actually did an honors thesis on Nietzsche and Eternal Return. And so I had started by writing on Heidegger and Walter Kaufman's interpretations of Mm -hmm. the Eternal Return. And I just kind of felt like, you know, this doesn't feel complete. I feel like I'm missing something. So I was in the library and, you know, our library wasn't bad, but I was just kind of scanning the philosophy books. First off, looking at Nietzsche and also looking at anything that had anything to do with time or repetition or anything Mm -hmm. like this. So I'm looking at the secondary scholarship on Nietzsche and I see this book, Nietzsche and Philosophy by Deleuze. So I pick it up, never heard of Gilles Deleuze in my life. And I pick it up and I'm thumbing through it. And uh, I see there are a couple sections on the eternal return. And I look in the, I think it's, I think it's got an index and I look in the index and mm-hmm. see, oh yeah, there's eternal return. Okay. This is good. I'll, I'll take this book. No idea who this guy is. And right. then on an impulse, I turn around, I literally do a 180 degree turn and I'm looking at the, sh- the stacks, uh, also philosophy. And then I see that this guy Deleuze has his own little section of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I see this book difference in repetition. I was like repetition return. Okay. Let's see if this has got anything on. Eternal oh my return. God. And I I go to the index and I'm like, wow, okay, there's a lot of stuff in here. So so I took those those books home and I read large parts, large chunks of difference in repetition and uh, large chunks of Nietzsche and philosophy. And I wouldn't pretend that I understood everything, but it was honestly... Deleuze's reading of Eternal Return was the first one that really made sense to me. Right. And I was like, this actually resonates really well. And it actually, for the first time, it brought Nietzsche into focus in a way that I had only ever seen him as having these various elements like will to power, eternal return, mm-hmm. the Ubermensch and stuff. But Deleuze's way of <laughs> casting it sort of made it all make sense and uh, you know, made it all kind of hang together in a way that I'd never seen, never thought Nietzsche hung together before. And so that's when Deleuze started to sort of get his hooks into me. And then I went to Memphis for my master's program. And that's where I started reading a lot of Derrida. Len Lawler was my advisor at Memphis. and That makes um, sense, yeah. Well, he taught some classes on just early 20th century continental philosophy, or I guess 20th century continental philosophy, in which we read some more Derrida. And then listening to Len talk about it, it's like he started to sort of resonate more with me and make more sense. And so I started to sort of get it, and it started to sort of get its hooks in me as well. And one of the things that we read in the late it was sorry, the, the 20th century continental class was the language essay by Heidegger, in which he introduces mm. this concept of the difference and uh, it's hyphenated. And so, you know, this is what I think 50, 53, 55, something like that, that this essay is written. And so, reading that essay and then reading Derrida and Deleuze. I started to sort of see them as sort of picking up where Heidegger is leaving off. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of by the time I got to Purdue, 
and was working with Dan Smith and, and hanging out with Dan Smith, then it was kind of like I was primed in that direction already. Yeah, yeah. That's a pedigree having Lynn Lawler and Dan Smith as your as your advisors. Uh, yeah. I met them once at a SPEP conference, both really chill, cool guys. Obviously, you could say more than I could just meeting them once, you know, and obviously they have done so much for for scholarship. I mean, like with Lawler, oh my you know, God. I mean, his like translating uh, Hippolyte uh, logic and existence, that was a big help for me. Huge. Under- understanding Deleuze and Hegel. And then um, obviously Dan Smith, he's for me, I mean, uh, and, and I can see how you pick up some of his tactics. He's one of the clearest expositors of, of Deleuze. And I feel like you you have, now it makes sense why you have such a kind of careful, sober reading of Deleuze and, and, and you make sure that the, the points are kind of lined up, right? And that the reader is able to follow you because a lot of Deleuze scholarship can just be you never know. It can be, it can have the same kind of exuberance sometimes that Deleuze has where you feel like you're being left behind, but you know, something, something is happening. And I feel like Dan is able to cultivate some of the, the sobriety that they, what, what do they say? A little urban water in Anti-Oedipus or in, in, in a thousand plateaus where they, they kind of beg for the reader to have some sobriety, you know, where they're, where they go, they, they're like, they're going crazy and like on oh, these acid trips. And then they're like, Oh, but all you need is a little urban water. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that's, that's really cool. I mean, I, I got introduced to Derrida because of English degree and the, the first class you take as an English major that is called like, uh, it was called like practical criticism. That's what it was called. And we got this I still love it. This big tome. It was a Norton anthology to theory and criticism. And so we oh, read yeah, like I know yeah, that. Book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So we read like the mirror stage. What the hell is Lacan talking about? We read <laughs> excerpts from of grammatology, you know, and Derrida was the one that stood out to me in that class. We didn't read any Deleuze, although we could have because, you know, Deleuze writes and Guattari, they write a lot about uh, literature. Sure. But, you know, we were given the the basic toolbox obviously it was simplified but it was the basic toolbox of deconstruction and how one could deconstruct texts you know at a very basic level and that always just that notion of how binaries you know structure the whole of western metaphysics while that idea was maybe too big for me it there was something intuitive about it right that there was something also something um kind of defying authority where you're able to like, yeah, you know, break down these binaries and how and find them within text. That that was exciting for me. That that made me really love doing lit crit. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I'm <laughs> I teach Derrida to my first year seminar. Mm. And one of the I know it's I feel every year I'm like, is this a bad idea? Is this right? Yeah. Am I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, Too early, um, right? Or, yeah. <laughs> but we talk about those binaries in, in the terms of the sort of meta binary of presence and absence and how, mm-hmm. you know, the terms are always sort of weighed, weighted, I should say, based upon their, you know, closer affinity with presence or with absence, depending on how you understand that. And then it, it, what it does is it traces this sort of conceptual thread between the sort of supplementary or secondary terms in Western metaphysics and the sort of primary terms. And it's really interesting to do because then you can go back to a story like the Genesis account of the fall and you can say, and just look at how these these tie together, because what do you have here? You have 
the feminine. You have Mm -hmm. the feminine on the side of desire, on the side of sin and transgression. And ultimately, it's because of this that you see death ushered into creation for the first time. And so you've got, you know, these two columns, right, with the sort of presence terms and the absence terms. And this is one very clear way in which you can kind of show this this connectedness between these sort of secondary concepts in, in Western metaphysics and ethics. So it's it's really cool. It tends to resonate, I think, I hope. Oh, yeah, I, I bet it does. I mean, you know, I, I didn't have, I, I wouldn't say my parents were evangelical, but I also had a Christian upbringing and they were devout uh, in their own ways. Uh, we went to, it's basically called like a um, church of Christ. So it's a non-denominational mm. church, very small group of people, but they took their like Bible study seriously with their concordances and they might as yeah. well have learned Greek, you know, along the way. That's like, you know, short of learning Greek and, and Aramaic and Hebrew, they went pretty far into reading texts. And so I guess that's maybe, maybe why I have yeah. like a kind of love for, for reading the Bible. So I would eat that, that up. Yeah. My, my dad has like an interlinear linear bible or yeah whatever, where it's the greek hebrew and english yeah all three. that's that's pretty cool i'm definitely yeah. on that same track of evangelical hardcore like central texas christian oh for sure yeah uh, ground zero for christian fascism and etc and like i had kind of like a paul on the road to damascus conversion from being a total you know country small town country kid rube and I, in my first uh intro to sociology class as a freshman going on this track of the binary opposition Mm-hmm. He really, he talked about how in the USSR, you know, we always say, yeah, the USSR has elections, but there's only one party, the Communist Party. And then he was like, but in, in the US, we have elections, but only one party, the Capitalist Party. And mm-hmm. that fucking, that crystallized. There, there you yeah. go, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've yeah. never turned back from that, from that moment. Yeah, I love that. I also wanted to ask, is it totally aside, and I can cut this if it's irrelevant, but Vernon, I was curious if you have read any of the Dune books just because of the relationship to time and uh, the repetition, eternal recurrence, et cetera. There's a lot of those themes in the books. I am ashamed to say that I have not. It is, again, it's on my to read list because all of my students, or not all of my students, I should say a couple of my students have come up to me in the course of the first year seminar and have said, oh, you've got to read the Dune books. And I I, I'm also ashamed to say I had never seen David Lynch's uh, oh, man. <laughs> film, yeah. but I did see the Denis Villeneuve film and loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Oh, yeah. And so so I, I know I have to read these books. I just haven't yet. Same. Uh, I have to read them. Cooper is he's making a to read list for me that I, I need to follow through with uh, Sterner, uh, obviously Dune. We watched uh, when I visited Cooper, we watched the Lynch version. I had never seen it before either. And it it was, it's kind of its own acid trip, but I, I guess you could say that for a lot of Lynch's works, right? <laughs> yeah, you know? I saw yeah, that, yeah. I saw that movie when I was like six. <coughs> and, uh, I've, been, oh I've been obsessed ever since. Yeah, wow. that's, that tells us a lot about your development, right? That's, yeah. Uh, you also mentioned Sterner and I, I really wish that I was capable of being the like the interlocutor that would really draw out this distinction. But I think Sterner can contribute a lot to this discussion relative to Vernon's book, being that the sort of central, I don't know if I want to necessarily call him a villain, but let's say the the sort of uh, ghostly apparition of Hegel that sort of haunts the pages of the book mm-hmm. and the discussion, right? Well, I think what is interesting is the way, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the way that Derrida and Deleuze sort of are trying to critique or maybe get beyond, go beyond Hegel and sort of the impossibility 
potentially of that project. I think that Sterner is an interesting counterpoint or at least an interesting development in that discussion or something worthwhile to look into because, you know, you mentioned Nietzsche and philosophy. Yeah. Within that book specifically, Deleuze does say, you know, Sterner does show us that, or he makes the claim at least that Sterner shows us it's nihilism at the heart of the dialectic. Yeah. And this was another, God, do you know Sterner very well? Because I really don't. This was another, I mean, I've, I've read the unique in its property. I've done several episodes, but yeah, it's like, it's sort of, you know, some of it vanishes over time. So I'm definitely not super qualified, but I'll, you know, I can kind of pick up here and there because I do think as well. And, you know, we talked to Dwayne uh, Roussel last week and he was saying, you know, because I took Sterner as almost this drawing from Saul Newman as kind of a proto post-structuralist and having some affinity with Derrida. But I think that's more so just based on kind of like a, a reductive understanding of Derrida's project relative oh. to construction. I have seen like a lot of Marxists and radical political thinkers sort of cite Sterner quite a bit, but I just don't know anything about him except for that little uh, mm-hmm. And I can't t- I can't tell if it's a jab. Is it a jab that Deleuze is sort of making? It kind of seems like it, but he, he says something like, yeah, it's something like Stirner is the logical outcome of the Hegelian dialectic. And yeah, yeah something like uh, shows that there's nihilism at the heart of it or something like that. I mean, I interestingly, mean, t- I didn't oh. think about this, but, you know, another big he's also it's interesting that Derrida in what is it? Specters of Marx. Right. That's the, a lot of the focus is on the German ideology and this dialogue between Stirner and Marx, etc. Mm, yeah. But go ahead, Taylor. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say it, it would make sense to be a jab in the light of your argument about Deleuze obviously being on the positive side of, of an ontology of difference. And if, if Stirner would be the, if the logical outcome is nihilism, then lining it up with your arguments that, that does seem like a jab or at least a, maybe not a jab, but at least, a you know, obviously Nietzsche talks about nihilism a lot and mm-hmm. Deleuze himself, but it's about a kind of where nihilism encounters itself and, and cancels itself out, kind of like yeah. the negative. So, but it does seem, on the other hand, maybe Sterner would be closer to what you argue, what you put forth with Derrida on the negative side of, yeah, of, yeah. of ontology of difference, where if Hegel perhaps is too quick to cancel out negativity, perhaps Sterner is more faithful to a vision like Derrida, mm. at least on this question, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and isn't so quick to cancel out negativity. Uh, interesting, interesting. That's kind of on the right track, I would say. Is I mean, Sterner is really interesting just in terms of being really the first post-Hegelian while still using the logic of Hegel. I, to me, I always say Sterner is Hegel's best student. <laughs> May not be his most influential student or best student that became the best philosopher, you know, contra mm-hmm. Marx, et cetera. But as far as Hegelian thought goes, I think that Stirner is the sort of culmination of, uh, of the method gotcha. or the logic or whatever. But, you know, that's a bold claim. We enjoy bold claims. Oh, uh, actually, jumping off of that, actually, I was talking to Vernon before you got on the recording with this about Leotard and this great zero thing. Yeah. That had any sort of relevance to this sort of hyper negative that Derrida proposes, you know, this negativity, like this calling out Hegel for not taking negativity far enough. And just this concept, this hyper negativity that Derrida, I think that's just a super fascinating concept. 
And yeah. I don't know if it has any relevance to zero or create zero or whatever, but I don't know. That was something that kind of, you know, a little light, little light bulb popped up of my head. Yeah. And, and, and I would go with, uh, you know, obviously since we're talking about difference, I would go to his book on the different, which I've brought up to you a, a couple of times. Yeah. We should do an uh, episode on that for sure. And, you know, I think that it, it has a lot to do with like Derrida's notions of justice and question of how can one even formulate a proceeding wherein justice is at stake if one cannot circumscribe ways in which two different parties totally antagonistic can even begin to speak to one another in a language that would be agreed upon. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, I'm clumsily giving Leotard's opening argument in the book, but uh, I do think that, I mean, um, Vern, I'll let you jump in here. I'm sorry. I, I'm just extemporaneously thinking yeah, how same. Leotard and Derrida might. And I don't really even know anything about their relationship. I know a little bit about their relation, the relationship between Leotard and Deleuze, obviously in between Derrida and, and Deleuze, but I'm not. Did, did Leotard and Derrida hang out in circles or talk about <sighs> each other? You know what? I don't have the work of morning handy, but I want to say, let me let me go look at yeah. something really quickly. Yeah, please. I kind of think that Derrida did give a eulogy. He gave a couple of those, didn't he? Yeah, I think he <laughs> gave a eulogy on Leotard, but I'll, I'll have to check. Because he did one on Deleuze. Yeah, he did which one you, on Deleuze. Which you, which you cite very, I mean, it's nice because I only have looked at that. I've never read it. So it was nice to see your arguments about Derrida grumbling at <laughs> philosophy as concept creation. Is that yeah. what he grumbled at? Yeah, that's right. He actually did give a, uh, I thought he did, a eulogy on Leotard. Well, so, we'll have to read that later. Then. Yeah, that's... yeah. But I don't, I don't know much about that relationship. And I was telling Coop before you got on that, honestly, all that I've read of Leotard is postmodern. Post yep. Yeah, postmodern condition. This is what I was saying to Coop. But one of the things I'm envious of with you guys is that you're reading all of this stuff every week. And I feel like my my scope is so limited just in terms of like the stuff that I'm trying to you know, crank out. And so, I mean, that's pretty cool that you guys are able to cover so many bases and, and so much ground. I think it's the last aphorism in Twilight of the Idols where he kind of says all he needs is like, like a goal. He, he wants to be an arrow. Yeah. So, I mean, it, there's, it's just different, right? You have, you're producing great work and you're, you have these goals that you're attuned toward. And we try to tap into every, everyone that has these, these, uh, these these targets and we we try to like take up some of those lines of flight and, and enjoy it i mean it's just it's just a little different but this is i told you this uh yesterday where this is a you know meeting up with coop and the things that we do it keeps me motivated every week yeah. to to read to think and then obviously to get to do the, the fun stuff for you know at the, yeah. at the end of the week and, and talking to people so you know we have provisional goals like we're trying to finish anti-edibs we finished libidinal economy we have these goals where we are like okay we're gonna go through every chapter we're gonna we're gonna try to get some of the juices out uh um, yeah, but, yeah. but it is nice and lovely to be able to to kind of uh just be nomadic a little bit right be a little <laughs> nomadic yeah um, but do you want to say a little bit about this grumbling that that derrida uh has with with concept creation as as the definition that Deleuze gives to philosophy. I think that this is a maybe a good way to bring up their uh, one of their contrasts. Yeah. So he in the in the eulogy, 
it's really interesting because I, I go to that eulogy as a way of introducing the book because Derrida sort of says all of this really nice stuff, you know, and he says something really strong, like never once did I feel, you yes. know, even the slightest <laughs> bit of resistance or anything to anything that Deleuze said, even if I might have grumbled here or there about some claims <laughs> in anti-Oedipus or uh, about, you know, the idea of philosophy as concept creation. And, I, uh, you know, this is where I go and I say, well, hang on a second. You can't say I disagree with or I grumble about his notion of philosophy as concept creation while simultaneously saying that you agree with everything that he said, because for Deleuze, concept creation is sort of at the heart of everything he's doing. And so, you know, he says this in multiple (laughs) interviews. He says it in multiple texts. What is the mark of a great philosopher? The concepts that they create. Mm -hmm. And what does he himself do? He uses those concepts as tools in his kit to create his own concepts that help him think. And so every time he's, you know, grabbing onto a thinker, it's kind of like, well, what does this thinker help me do? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what does the, what concepts does this thinker create and what concepts can I create out of it? And so, and this comes up, this brings us to the point about the, you know, the negative versus the positive. And it comes down to the distinction between constructivism on Deleuze's part versus mm-hmm. deconstruction on Derrida's part. And it's one of the things that I, I have sort of a a beef with Derry, not a beef maybe, but one of the things that I, <laughs> okay. I, I find a little off-putting about Derrida is that there's this, you know, there's this emphasis in his work that all we can do for the foreseeable future is deconstruct. All we can, you know, do going forward for some time to come, the only, the only strategies we have are deconstruction. And the reason for that I think is because of this this negativity that always manifests in an either or, right? In a binarity. And there is a line in the appendix to Limited Ink, mm-hmm. the Limited Ink volume, where uh, who is it? Ger- Gerald Graff, I think, who edits that. And that book, Limited Ink, was initially conceived as a dialogue between Searle and Derrida, right? Because Derrida had published this work on J.L. Austin, and Searle sort of feels territorial and writes a piece called Reiterating the Differences, in which he basically, you know, shits on Derrida. <laughs> and, and so, Gerald Graff is like, oh, great. Finally, we've got these, we've got, you know, one of the torchbearers of the continental tradition, one of the torchbearers right. of the analytic tradition speaking to each other. Let's, let's do a book and let's, let's, you know, combine the essays. And I think he was going to give Searle the last word. And so it was going to be Derrida's Austin piece, Searle's reiterating the differences, Derrida's response to Searle and Searle's response to Derrida. And Searle was just like, no, I want nothing to do with this. So Derrida Mm. just basically mopped the floor with Searle. If you've ever read the limited Inc. ABC piece, it's like one of the funniest pieces of philosophy because Derrida is just raking him over the coals as he probably um, deserves as yeah he, as he, as he abs- absolutely very um, pleased to hear about this <laughs> <laughs> but in the appendix to this gerald graff is like okay so let me play devil's advocate now mm-hmm. let me come at this as an analytic philosopher or as someone who is critiquing you from another tradition across the aisle let's say and let me ask you this it sort of seems like you rig the game in favor of yourself in mm-hmm. favor of the deconstructive project because essentially you argue again and again and again that concepts can only be done in this way, in this sort of binary way. But then, of course, once you do that, you've left yourself this possibility of infinite deconstructibility. So all we can ever do is posit these binaries, and those binaries will always lead to deconstruction. So aren't you kind of sort of rigging the game for yourself? And Derrida says, look, I'm not the one who made up the rules of the either or. (laughs) 
that's just that's the way philosophical concepts have always been done. They've always been done in, in this binary way. And so if you're not going to do concepts that way, then you're not doing philosophy anymore. Right. And yeah. so it's this kind of thing that he does. That's kind of frustrating a little bit. It is a little frustrating. It's one of the things that I it's one of the reasons you might have detected in the book that I do sort of come down on the side of Deleuze more than I do on the side of Derrida, even though I love Derrida and I, I find him very useful for dismantling things. I find myself more sympathetic to Deleuze. And this is this is one of the reasons because basically Deleuze is like, no, you know, if creating concepts in this binary way is what's giving us the problems, let's just figure out how to create concepts in a new way. And right. Derrida, you know, sort of hints in that, you know, at that gesture when he says something like, in that very same, you know, back and forth between him and Graf, he says something like, of course, one can deconstruct the notion, the very concept of the concept, which mm -hmm. is kind of what I'm doing, which is kind of what I've been doing. But at the same time, it's like anytime you want to sort of make a positive claim, Derrida is going to sort of pull back a little bit. And this mm -hmm. is one of the things that I find a little bit off-putting about Derrida. So you asked about the creation of concept. And for him, that's, I think, why Deleuze's mention of philosophy or mentioned his emphasis on philosophy as mm -hmm. the creation of concepts is fraught is because for Derrida, the creation of concepts means this establishment of these binaries that always, of course, you know, land themselves in deconstruction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, does, I mean, does it, it, does it carry oh, itself ahead, out? Ahead. Well, I'm just thinking about this in term, you know, in relation to something like non-philosophy or non-standard philosophy. Sure. As well, and like that whole discussion, but also we did an episode not too long ago with uh, with Todd McGowan and Ryan Engley, and it kind of comes down to this binary of are you on the side of the two or are you on the side of the multiplicity? You know, mm -hmm. I have to come down on the side of multiplicity ultimately at the end of the yeah. day. As, that's, that's good. As yeah, that's where I found myself. But too. you know, like there is a certain, I don't know, there's a certain relevance to this notion of infinite deconstruction, at least in the prison house Absolutely. language, right? I don't know if this is even related. This may be just things that don't kind of fit together, but maybe it does because there's an ethical argument that you yeah. make relative yeah. to alterity. So I've been thinking about this construct of the uh, the scapegoat right the other mm -hmm. is this a predicated just via language like is this a sort of you know is there any escape from this binarization is there any way for us to have a cohesive or at least like a system that doesn't have a totality like there's an openness to freedom to where you can you're not sort of concretized in this i don't know this yeah. uh, this sort of real hard determinist i guess ontology I think in a certain sense, this comes back to what Taylor said a little bit ago about the different and Lyotard in the sense that I do think Derrida is very good at when you do have these sort of de facto systems of oppression and marginalization, he's very good at sort of breaking open the sort of divide that would allow the beginnings of a communicative exchange between mm -hmm. the, the two. And so that's something I still think is, is very useful. And I think Deleuze, if he were going to sort of say... You know, here's a way in which there's a deficiency. It's not a deficiency, really, but I think he has that moment in his work, but he goes so quickly to the positivity and the multiplicity. It gets, it's just one little moment on the way to this, this bigger thing. And so for some, you know, for some folks, I think that they, they find themselves resistant to Deleuze precisely for that reason, because he goes too quickly towards the multiplicity. It's why I said I come down more on the side of Deleuze than I do Derrida, but I haven't 
it's not that I see Derrida as irrelevant or useless or, you know, pointless or anything like that. I just see him as, as sort of, this is, you know, Protevi said this in his book on political physics, you know, it's kind of like Derrida provides a really good basis for analysis and critique. And Deleuze gives us more in the way of, you know, fleshing out what an alternative might look like, Mm. I think. So I see them as, I guess, in a, in a way, here we are back in binarity, but as complementary to each other. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that the Derrida would shy away from that. And maybe yeah. in his grumbling, that was, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't the place in a eulogy after Deleuze passed to say something like how they could, they could be a tag team, but there yeah, is yeah. something, there is something to that. I mean, that you kind of indicate. And I, I thought that was really, really a, an interesting idea is this idea that Derrida's infinite, like never giving up on negativity and like tearing with it and therefore insisting upon deconstruction, but also Deleuze positing that creation can't be just an epiphenomenon. It has to be central. This is kind of where I see what Coop was bringing up with Laura Well and non-philosophy, non-standard philosophy. In the very early works of Laura Well, he's interested in kind of smashing Deleuze and Derrida together at infinite speed. Uh, he calls it the Deli Da Deruz series. Um, and, and I guess that the thing with non-philosophy, at least in one of its iterations, it's got so many lives, but in, in the 80s, let's say, in the very beginnings of fleshing out what non-philosophy can do, the idea of taking a philosophical text and prepping it and priming it and then putting it through certain axioms about the one, the real, et cetera, does feel like deconstruction, but then you create something new based on these rules. And you can't say that it's, it's merely a kind of a mirror or a parody. It's not just that it can, it can seem like that to a philosopher's eyes, you know, when, when their texts are being manipulated in this way, it can seem like a parody. But it's not. There is something creative about it. And so, like, that's kind of how I see non-philosophy in creating a non-philosophical text based on a philosophical text. One is deconstructing while at the same time not merely concerned only with that. Yeah. So... I'm not saying Laurawell is the only type of synthesis or complementarity we can have between Deleuze and Derrida, but that was something that he at least was interested in and that, that kind of motivated him and his textual machines. Uh-huh. And so I kind of find that a little bit helpful, but it is interesting that this idea about Derrida rigging the game in his own favor. I mean, it's, it's, I think that, I mean, is, isn't, so, that just yeah. a repeti- isn't that just a repetition of Hegel rigging the game of Western philosophy? I was kind right? of thinking that too, Cooper. <laughs> I was kind of thinking like, if we could only... De- My dad can beat up your dad, basically. Yeah, I mean, if, if we can only deconstruct in the foreseeable future, it does feel like Hegel kind of saying like, well, I am the culmination of German idealism. I mean, that's the dialectic, right? Would be yeah. this sort of, this movement of history through binarization or opposition, mm-hmm. uh, contradiction, however you want to elaborate whatever those two pieces are, or even if you want to consider them pieces, I don't know, that's a, its own question. The dialogue between where Laruel would come into play, just because of the way Taylor said, there's a certain synthesis of Derrida and uh, and Deleuze there that could perhaps be a enriching little foray. But and for Laruel, the key is Nietzsche. 
I mean, for oh, him, true, right? yeah, good point. for him, the key between Deleuze and Derrida, and and I think this is not maybe not for the same reasons that Vern seizes upon the same thing that obviously Heidegger and Hegel were linchpins, but Nietzsche becomes one of those key, let's say he's the resonator or something between Deleuze and Derrida to a certain extent. He allows them to have a uh, a common point of departure or, or at least a common, I don't for know. Sort of tying, for we're it. tying a knot perhaps between the yeah, two. Yeah, tying a knot. I mean, tie it there, right? Or quilt it. Do you want to say a few things about their relation to Nietzsche? Because you you make this great claim that I didn't I never thought about about how Derrida doesn't see Nietzsche as a, as doing ontology. While for Deleuze, that's not even a question. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting to hear you and I hadn't thought about this explicitly. So you've stimulated a lot of things. And this is this is when I'm gonna to start to sound stupid because I'm gonna to start <laughs> to ramble. So to the Nietzsche question, it's really, really interesting because Nietzsche is one of the only real figures of commonality between mm-hmm. Derrida and Deleuze. Mm-hmm. So in the book, I talk about the fact that, and, and you know, I'm not the first to note this. Dan Smith has noted this. Uh, Agamben has noted this. They're each working on a kind of different canon, right? I mean, Derrida yes, yes. is is uh, deeply immersed in the three H's, Hegel, Heidegger, and Husserl. And Deleuze almost, you know, religiously avoids mention of those <laughs> figures. Husserl gets a lot of favor in uh, logic of sense a few times, but yes, yes. but you know he's usually a figure of an object of critique, like in uh, what is philosophy, for instance. But so Derrida's got his his folks, right? Descartes, yep. Husserl, Heidegger, Hegel, and Deleuze has his, you know, Lucretius, Bergson, Spinoza. Bergson, yeah. yeah. And so at each of these sort of key moments in the history of philosophy where Derrida sort of focuses on the the moves that the tradition, the arc of the tradition makes, Deleuze is kind of here in the in the cellars, right? In the gutters, mm-hmm. working on the on the moves that philosophy didn't make. And so my point in saying all of that is to say, as you said, Derrida is writing on Descartes. Deleuze is writing on Spinoza and Hume, right? Mm -hmm. Derrida is writing on Husserl and Heidegger. Deleuze is writing on Bergson. When it comes to Kant, both of them are influenced greatly by Kant. But how does Deleuze read Kant? Deleuze reads Kant through the third critique, which Mm -hmm. he reads through Solomon Maimon, right? So Solomon Maimon is this absolutely immensely important figure in the 18th century who gets sort of just left aside as mm-hmm. German idealism takes its its path. And Deleuze goes back there and says, oh, here's this all this virtuality that we can start to play with and, and see other paths that this might have taken. So Nietzsche is a really interesting figure precisely because he is one that actually unites the two of them. Both of them see Nietzsche as a kind of answer to Hegel, a way of starting to open up space beyond Hegel. And there again, it's it's also interesting because despite that commonality, they both read him very differently as, as as you mentioned, you know, Derrida, I sort of reduce Heidegger's reading of Nietzsche to these three basic points, which is maybe not completely fair to Heidegger because Heidegger wrote thousands of pages on Nietzsche. <laughs> well, <laughs> but it's useful for us. <laughs> Where he sort of says, you know, that the Nietzsche is an ontological figure and this means, how does he do it? It's like his notion of will to power. His notion of will to power is substantive. We can identify right, a, right. a sort of thisness to what a will to power looks like. And then it's going to be this desire to expand while also maintaining what it's, you know, it's reserve, right? Continue to grow, continue to amass more power. And Derrida sort of takes that reading and says, okay, Heidegger would be correct if 
Nietzsche were doing an ontology, but he's not. <laughs> and so what Nietzsche opens us up to is this infinite slippage of the signifier, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And Deleuze says, well, you know, he goes a sort of a slightly different angle and says, yeah, Nietzsche's doing an ontology, right? Yeah. This is an ontology of force, an ontology of will. Mm-hmm. But the problem is with Heidegger's, I guess we could say, and I don't know if I say it quite this way in the book or not, but it's not the first claim, it's the second claim. It's the, the substantialism. It's the, yeah, the right? substantialism to the will to power. Mm-hmm. For Deleuze, it's like, no, you cannot talk about a will to power on its right. own. It's always a will in relation to another will, a force. It's always plurality, right? It's always multiplicity. It's always plurality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's what gets us out of this problem of, you know, Heidegger's, you know, it's the constant desire for expansion and preservation, right? So again, it's just a really interesting point of divergence between the two, even though Nietzsche is such a strong point of commonality for both of them. And it's it's interesting because in the Différence essay, Derrida, in talking about Nietzsche, cites Deleuze's Nietzsche and philosophy oh, wow, as, yeah. you know, having a touchstone, being a touchstone for his mm-hmm. own thinking. It's really, really fascinating. Actually, one of the few places where you see them, you know, one of them citing the other one. They're, they're very, they're very elusive in that way. You don't yeah. see a lot of that. I think Derrida shows up in Anti-Oedipus, but it's not, yeah. it's like, laudatory and then dismissive you know it's always very there's they're always very cheeky right yeah that's right that's Um, right and and i think you know again the eulogy i think is another good example of that because mm -hmm. as you said it's it's a eulogy you have to be respectful yeah you can't just be a total dick but he comes off he's like oh i love everything the list said and we agreed on everything and we were such good friends but you know, here's yeah. this little thing, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about this and uh, all the ways he was great, but here's this yeah. little thing. And yeah. those little things are actually hugely significant in right. the projects of the two of them. So yeah, it's it's interesting. And something Coop said a minute ago about history. What did you say about history that sort of fired up something in me? Oh, I think it was the history of philosophy. Yeah. Uh, you know, Derrida, when he traces this metaphysics of presence from Plato all the way up through Husserl, whom he calls the the most virulent defender of the metaphysics of presence. You know, in in a certain sense, each of the moments, it's making the same turn, right? And so once you kind of get Derrida's formula down, once you start to kind of see what he's doing, then it's like whether you're reading his reading of Hegel or you're reading his reading of Plato or you're reading his reading of, of Husserl, you can see the same moves kind of being made, right? And so there is this kind of like with Heidegger, kind of like with Hegel, there is this idea that there's a you know, a a thread running through history that binds it all together, or the history of Western philosophy that kind of binds it all together, where Deleuze would deny that, right? History is a mess. And at at each of these moments, what he's doing instead of deconstructing the binary is he's kind of going to, again, I I said the gutters before, the ditches, right? He's going into the stuff that gets discarded and saying, let's Mm -hmm. see what we can pull out of there. And it's, it's interesting too, because you can see that in their in their respective treatments of Plato, which is right. something else that I initially thought about doing in the book and, and didn't. But, you know, Derrida does this sort of classical deconstructive move with Plato. And what does Deleuze do? He says, no, the problem with the way that we've traditionally understood Plato is that we think of him as having this binary understanding of the, right. the form and the copy. But yeah. there's also this thing called the simulacrum that's really important for Plato that we don't talk about. So if we're going to invert Platonism, that yeah. means elevating the simulacrum and giving it pride of place. And then what does that do? That destroys the, or does it destroy, but it dismantles the way that we think about the binary. So, I mean, to a certain extent, that's a kind of deconstruction that he does. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Deleuze does kind of say Plato brings up the simulacrum only to kind of put it in a lower 
in a degraded position yeah. and then wants us to kind of forget about it as though it weren't a problem. Yeah. But it actually is the, <laughs> itself. Because what does he say in Logic of Sin? Something like, you know, if anti-Platonism or if the inversion of Platonism is, which he takes up from Nietzsche, right, is one of the pressing tasks of modern philosophy, it may begin with Plato himself. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and it's with the simulacrum. Yeah. And that seems kind of like a Deridian move a little yeah. bit, right? You know, I, uh, I think so. I think so. And I actually do make this point in the book. It's indifferent to repetition where he, he says something like the Heraclitean world still grumbles in Plato. Mm, it's really yeah, Aristotle yeah. who shuts it down, right? Plato flirts so much with this differential play. I mean, he really does. There are these moments where you can see, I talk about it, I think I talk about it in The Sophist, where yes, Plato, yeah, where Plato comes really, really close because he says the different, the form of the different differs from the identical, not on the basis of the identical, but on the basis of the different. Yeah, and, and it's that like, sounds like Deleuze. Yeah, once you start down that path, it's yep. like if you really start to play with what that means, that begins to undo all of the forms. And so he he hedges at just the right moment to keep it from becoming too tumultuous, but it's there. And, yeah, and Deleuze yeah. knows it, I think, too. So that's probably why he begins Logic of Sense talking about Plato with the becoming mad, the becoming, what is it? The becoming. Yeah, uh, I know what you're talking about. Becoming mad, becoming, it's something like un, it's not uncontrollable, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, he yeah. begins. He begins with Alice, you know, who's smaller than she will be, or, you know, the paradox, right? That first paradox is, yeah. is all about kind of introducing this idea that. Perhaps there isn't a form for every little thing, for every Ooh. becoming. And this uh. and this and this wildness, this madness is hinted at by Plato, but also foreclosed, right? It's it's kind of a disavowal in the very Freudian sense, right? Where it's like, you know very well, right, that you're about castration or whatever. And and yet you have to like you have to repress it. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Coop, were you saying something? Oh no, I wanted to ask you, I was gonna ask you, where does that say for Baudrillard? Oh wow. I mean with Baudrillard. I'm not sure if he would either agree with Deleuze on philosophy as concept creation. He might see that as too naive or too yeah, much of I, a beautiful soul. Somehow, uh, right, yeah, kind he of, might I, say like the philosopher isn't an artist, right? You got to throw Molotovs or some shit, but uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, he might also see in Derrida that, you know, well, you, were just, you were just sort of talking about how the simulacrum mm-hmm. without a sort of form, right? That dis- yeah. disambiguation at the very least. So that's yeah, what yeah. I was kind of trying to tap into because that sounded interesting. So I'll be quick and I'll let uh, Vern jump in. I mean, with Deleuze, the simulacrum is important because for him, it really points to the fact that difference cannot be kept under a form of the identical. As Vern was just saying, like the forms, and it can't be based on a model Right? It breaks apart the model and the copy. This kind of gives us crown anarchy and gives us kind of, uh, it's the first step for Deleuze, I think, in uncovering a philosophy of difference where indifference is not subordinated to the concept of, or, or to, the, to the identical, to resemblance, to opposition, to analogy. You know, these, these moves that he makes. With, with Baudrillard, um, the simulacrum seems to be I have to say, related more to this Lacanian dialectic of, gotcha. of okay. the symbolic, the real, the imaginary. Right. Okay. Again, Baudrillard is harder for me to like pin down, and I'm yeah. still I'm still willing to learn. Vern, did you, did you want to jump in there? I, I uh, so I think 
I don't know Baudrillard well enough, but that's always been kind of my sense too, is that they have very different understandings of the simulacrum, mm-hmm. uh, Certainly, yeah. Baudrillard and Deleuze. And uh, once upon a time, I thought about actually doing either an essay or a book on the concept of the simulacrum in French philosophy. And because awesome. I think it, it almost means something cool. <laughs> different for everybody. I mean, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. Klosowski uses it, Deleuze, Derrida use it, Baudrillard uses it. It's almost like it means something completely different for each of them. But yeah, it seems to me what I know of Baudrillard is, is something closer to the sort of the psychoanalytic mm-hmm. way of understanding it than it is the way that Deleuze thinks about it. There is that Klosowski essay in the appendix to Logic of Sense. Yes. Right. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. body's language and uh, about the phantasm. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. Which I assume Klosowski. What we learned from. See, this is funny. When we were reading Leotard and Libidinal Economy, he has a almost twenty pages devoted to living currency. And I, I found out after we had finished the series that you had with Dan <laughs> Smith and who was the third translator? I uh, Nikolai Marar at University okay. of Oregon. Okay, yeah, the three of you recently translated Klasowski. Yeah. Do you want to say anything about either how that project started <laughs> or, or you're interested in Klasowski? Because he, he wrote a very influential book on Nietzsche, especially for Deleuze. He yeah. was one of the principal translators of Nietzsche into French yeah. in the 60s. Do you want to say anything about that? Sure. I am both honored and embarrassed. <laughs> and I'll, I'll explain why in just a second. So the task of translation the project of translation sort of came about Nikolai and I were very good friends in grad school at Purdue with Dan. And um, so we both came in the entry class of 2006 and we sort of, you know, identified each other, Nikolai and I really quickly as kindred spirits. And so I knew French well enough to read it. And Nikolai knew that And it was at that phase in our careers where it was just like we were looking for every single opportunity to to add something to our CV, no matter what it was, right? Yeah, and that's both a blessing and a curse, right? Yeah, absolutely. That that push, yeah. Absolutely. And so this friend of ours, uh, Nathan John and Shane Wall, these friends, I should say, were editing this book on anarchism, and they had a piece by Irene Pereira that needed translated from French into English. And so Nikolai said, hey, how would you feel about doing this? And I said, Mm -hmm. sure. And the, the two of us worked very, very well together because my knowledge of French is not it's certainly not expert by any means, but his is pretty good. And so he understands French idioms far better than I do. And he's Romanian. He lived in Spain for a while. He lived in France for a while. So English isn't uh, his first language. So English is not his first language. And so I understand the English idioms better than he does. And so working together, we had this really good synergy in the sense that, you know, we were able to sort of detect, he was able to sort of detect the nuances of the French. And I was able to sort of couch it in language that was much more idiomatic for a mm-hmm. native English speaker. So our first piece was that Irene Pereira piece of which I'm not very proud because when I look back at it, it, it was way too, I think, too cardboard and too close to the, the French and didn't read well enough for English. And that, that happens. I've, I've done that before. And so I feel <laughs> yeah. your pain. I feel your pain. But go on. Yeah. So then we did a couple more pieces and we we ended up doing a, a Kristeva piece for um, Critical Inquiry. And I was actually extremely proud of that piece. Good. And so one day we were sitting in Dan's It was an ethics of imminence seminar. And Nikolai and I were both auditing this seminar. And we were talking about anti-Oedipus that day. And Dan was talking about this, you know, this 
Klosowski text, La Monnaie Vivant, which had had such a profound impact on all the French thinkers of the late of the 60s. And um, there you go. Yeah. And it hadn't been translated into English. And Nikolai sort of sent me a text. He might have even sent it to me while we were in the class <laughs> saying, saying, dude, what do you think about trying to get this? I love and it. I, I love yeah, it. Yeah. And I was like, uh, okay, well, let's look into it. And so we looked into it. It was a 70 page text. The most we had done prior to this was maybe, you know, 25 pages or something like that. So I was a little nervous. And it's we, a literary text, right? Or it's is it, a literary. Or is it, well, it's or, it's. or is it theoretical? Is it kind of theory fiction? It's, theori- it's theory. It's theory. Yeah. It's, okay, it's, gotcha, it's more gotcha. theory, but it's extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, when we started doing it, Dan was, you know, Dan sort of told us because Dan actually translated the Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle book. Right. Yes. So he has translated some Klosowski and is a, an expert on Klosowski, I would say. He actually wrote the little introduction to our volume. And I'm really, really proud of this volume too. But so my reason for saying I am both honored and embarrassed <laughs> is because I, by the time we got to this piece, we had all gone our separate ways. Nikolai was at University of Oregon. I was at Gettysburg and Dan was at Purdue. Mm-hmm. And so we had to do it, you know, virtually essentially. And so basically I took the the essay or I took the piece and took the first crack at it. So my, my part in it was the initial translation into the English. Then Nikolai took it and did some glossing over and Mm -hmm. then Dan took it and Dan really polished it. So when I read this text, I don't remember how, you know, it doesn't strike me as what I translated is what I'm saying uh, because Dan, you know, really perfected it and made it what it is, what, what you read when you read it. So you once told someone on Twitter, oh, you know, someone was asking for experts on Klosowski and you said, oh, Vern Sisney. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, so sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like, I was just like, I was sort of like, oh, man, I'm, I'm flattered that someone thinks that of me, but I'm such a, I'm such a neophyte compared to, uh, compared to Dan. Dan truly is an expert, Klosowski. Well, but. Danny's a damn Twitter account then, right? You know, like, <laughs> you gotta get, gotta get the man on. No, I mean, we're going to do when that I, book at some point. It's so yes. good. It's so good. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the Klosowski, I think, uh, was it's a, a nice, obscure, was, it's a nice, obscure one, too, that would be really good. You know, and 70 pages isn't like, too long for no, one it's session. Not, no, 70? it's not. Oh, yeah, that's it's like 70 pages. Yeah, yeah, it ends on 76. Nice, <laughs> and you know, it's something that I think, think was missing from because Leotard does, yeah, do a sustained kind of reading of it, and um, yeah, and, and it, it's Doesn't something he reference that, he references some of his fictional work, yes, he does, if I'm not mistaken, you know. Fuck if I know what it's called. Yeah, I can't uh, remember. It's, it escapes me. But, Baf- but he probably find out. Baphomet or um I don't think it was Baphomet, although Deleuze talks about that book yeah, in yeah. Logic of Sense. I think it was are you gonna look just a I think it was a. what I remember from it was the was it Robert? That might be right. I don't know if that's the title of it, but he talks about a man and a I know that there's there's a man and his wife. And he's kind of involved with her cheating on him and like how he doesn't care. But then there's also a whore who gets off on Leotard kind of makes this quip or something about how, you know, she's not supposed to enjoy, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the, madam the act of pro- to, right. The right. madam. Yeah. She's not supposed to enjoy the act of prostitution. And I think that's another gosh. But see, this just kind of shows how we could have been able to deepen our understanding had we uh although Le- libidinal economy is one of those books where you can like anti-oedipus or a thousand plateaus it's, it's something yeah. that you can never get in the laws of hospitality okay that may or may not be translated yeah Le philosophie and then he's and then he cites some other klosowski essays uh, but i know that 
living currency is a uh, yeah oh he does he Nietzsche, does okay. the circle of Nietzsche in the yeah. circle so a lot yeah there you go but the, but a lot of living money citations that's why when I found out that it was translated and I don't know if <laughs> was someone asking for an expert on Klosowski because I, I I hope I wasn't like saying like putting you in a spot I I think no, I was no. trying I was trying to be uh like, oh, you know, one of our be a hype man. Yeah, 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 exactly. Trying to be a hype man. Like, ah, oh, like. No, I appreciated it. I really did. I was just, it's, embarrassed is not the right word, but like. <laughs> I put you in a spot. <laughs> no, no, not you. But I just feel like my name is associated with this work now. And I'm very proud of that, right? Yeah. But I'm, uh, at the same time, it's like, I feel like I, I deserve no accolades, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, I, just uh, before we move on. You know, when I spoke with Dan recently, and I need to get back to him because we want to have him on the show. And I mentioned the Glasowski uh, and how you and I were friends. He spoke very highly of you and said that you did the the brunt of the work. So I think <laughs> different perspectives, right? He has a different perspective about what he contributed, and uh, you know. Oh well, and, that's and, that's very nice. Yeah, uh, and you you guys have a, a different you have a different perspective about what he did. I mean, like. We all, it sounds like you had an assemblage, right? And, and each of you brought yeah. something that complemented the other. And so I think that that's, that's really cool. Dan is such a generous person too. I mean, he really is. He's a super nice guy. And that's always cool. Like, so Dan Smith came to a conference at the University of Memphis my first year uh, or my first or second year, my, well, my first year of grad school and gave a talk. And it was like meeting one of my heroes because I had yeah. read Nietzsche in the Vicious Circle. And so I knew the name. And when he was introduced, I didn't make the connection until until the student introduced him and said he was the translator of this book. And then I was like, holy shit, this is like a, yeah. a rock star that's here. And, you know, we went out to lunch and we went out, we had drinks and things and it's just a super nice guy. And it's always awesome when you meet one of these like rock star, you know, academics who's also just really down to earth and yeah. super, super chill and generous. Was he a reason that you thought about going to Purdue? Was he one of those reasons or was that just a happy accident? Uh, it was a little bit of both. I was at the time when I was looking at where I was going to want to do my PhD, I was interested, and this is funny, but I was interested in writing on Foucault and yeah. possibly Heidegger. And so Len was the one who said, if you're wanting to write on Foucault, I would strongly advise you to go to Purdue. And uh, he said, I'm friends with Dan Smith and, and he's a really good guy. And I was like, oh, Dan came. Yeah. And yeah. so then it was like, so that became, I think, kind of my my number one pretty quickly. And I, I got into a couple of places, but one of the places I got into was Marquette. And I also got into Purdue. And um, I liked Marquette and I liked their emphasis on history. But, you know, at the end of the day, like for the French stuff, Dan was yeah. just, the, that was just, there was no question. You've talked about being a student. You mentioned a little bit about how you teach Derrida in the, to the first years. Do you want to talk a little bit about your students and your, what do they say? Your, your teaching philosophy, right? You, have, you always have to pedagog have a pedagogical schema. Yeah. Your pedagogical <laughs> philosophy, right? You know, do yeah. you, want, you want to say a little bit about uh, your students and sort of what you either like to teach or, and, and just I want to know a little bit about that because I, I always forget to ask this question, but it's it's a very vital one. You mentioned yesterday in our correspondence that you might want to talk about this. And I thought about this a lot and there's just so much. So yeah. okay. I'll just start talking. I'll just start talking yeah. and uh, you guys can edit it however, however you want. In terms of my approach, there are a couple of things. 
I've learned in the time that I've been teaching at Gettysburg in particular. And I do think every every student body you work with is different. And um, I was fortunate, I would say, to teach at Indiana University Kokomo for a year. It's a, you know, I would say probably about 30 or 40% of the student body is non-traditional. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of students there older than I was. And uh, that brings its own challenges, but it also brings its own rewards, you know, mm-hmm. because those students have a lot of life experiences that, you know, 18-year-olds don't have. And, right. <laughs> and they bring perspective that, you know, that 18-year-olds don't have. And so that's really interesting. So some of the things that I've learned when I first got here, everyone was saying, oh, don't be afraid to challenge them and stuff like this. And so I went in basically guns blazing <laughs> on day one with, so I was teaching a contemporary moral issues class. And oh, uh, wow. yeah, and it wouldn't have been my first choice for a class to teach, but I was like, oh, you know what? I can find some ways to uh, make Ooh. this relevant to my stuff. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I go in and I'm teaching l'animal que donc je suis, the animal that therefore I am to oh, wow. a 100 yeah. level, you know, contemporary moral issues class that students are taking for humanities credit. And I realized it was just way over the heads of these students and I was having yep. to bring in so much. So on the one hand, I learned a sort of, you know, you have to, you have to be careful with how you do this and you have to couch it in in all of the the best ways. And so, but at the same time, I do like to challenge my students and I do like to, I've just learned, I guess I've, I've honed a more nuanced way of doing that. And so you brought up voice and phenomenon. And, uh, one of the things we were sort of chatting about yesterday was, um, you know, you said my husserl is just not good enough to to really understand this book. (laughs) Yeah. And so, so the way that I teach this book and one of the reasons that I like this book and one of the reasons that I wrote the, the book on Derrida through the lenses of voice and phenomenon is it is one of the places where you see Derrida being. I would say his most concise and his most economical in the sense that if you read, you know, for instance, if I were going to teach the difference essay, right, that's like a 20 page essay or something. He's talking about Nietzsche. He's talking about Heidegger. He's talking about Saussure. He's talking about Levi Strauss. He's talking yeah, about yeah. all of these figures. And so it's like, and he's just sort of dropping things really quickly. And, and so to teach that essay, I would have to talk about all of this context, right? Where with Husserl and voice and phenomenon, one of the reasons I like this text and I like re- having first years read it, it's still over their heads, mm-hmm. but it's like when you get to the sort of crux of what the text is doing, it's a very simple idea. And so, you know, starting with Husserl, it's like, what is Husserl doing? Husserl is is trying to get us to think about, you know, being in terms of exclusively in terms of signi- or, uh, the experience, the, the sense itself, right? It's a very... It's something that's very relatable to an 18 or 19 year old student, especially when you've taught them Descartes and you've said, okay, what does Descartes do? Descartes divorces thought from the world. And then he says, okay, how do we get it back? The move that Husserl makes is he says, fuck it. You can't, right? Once you've, once you've (laughs) divorced thought from being, you have to acknowledge that you're never going to get the, you know, the real external to any and all thought, right? So all we can do is really focus on the experience as it arises. And so I highlight those four or five key points in Husserl. And again, you know, Husserl's this, you know, voluminous, you know, author, oh, yeah. you know, so much. Yeah. And he's constantly starting over, right? Uh, everything is, you know, an introduction to phenomenology. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, what Derrida does is he really focuses on like three or four key points in Husserl. And it's the, the, two types of signs, indications and expressions, it's time consciousness and it's intersubjectivity, right? And so if you frame that text in in that way where you've got these touchstones that you've already gone over with the students and you're showing what that what Derrida's doing is what 
you know, he's dismantling what Husserl's trying to do. And what's mm-hmm. Husserl trying to do? He's trying to focus us on the interiority of, of subjective experience. And Derrida is inserting just a little bit of a wedge into mm-hmm. that and opening it back up and saying that there is no self-relation that is not also a hetero relation or an, uh, an other relation. And so it's bringing that otherness back in. And then you can can bring that into discussions having to do with immigration, having to mm. do with gender and, and ethics. And, and it really starts to resonate with students when you can, when you can do that. So my approach is to I like to do stuff that's going to really stop students in their tracks and make them ask themselves, you know, what am I doing with my life? And what what do I want to do mm-hmm. with my life? And what sort of person do I want to be? And so that's that's my that's my general, you know, ethos. In the last few years, and I, I would say in the last se- several years, I have cultivated a sort of spirit of vulnerability that I mm. think students really appreciate. Yeah. Um, and I can pinpoint a few really key moments. One was when I was teaching David Foster Wallace. My experience of teaching David Foster Wallace was was <laughs> was brutal. I can say more about that in a, in a moment if you want. One of the things, of course, that Wallace talks a lot about is depression and mental illness and mm. uh, antidepressants. And I was teaching Wallace and I sort of made a, a decision in this on the spot in the classroom that I was going to talk about my own struggles yeah. with with mental health issues and be very very open and vulnerable about it and and i didn't realize it until later when students would tell me about it but it really resonated with students it's yeah. like they they stop seeing you as this they stop seeing the hierarchy right and i think that 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 you know enabling them to stop seeing the hierarchy actually enables more of that mind blowing stuff because mm-hmm. you're able to relate to them and it doesn't feel like a person preaching down to them. It yes. feels more like a friend having a conversation and challenging them. Mm-hmm. And so that vulnerability was a sort of key moment. And I talked about that with a few of my other professor friends, and they were sort of inspired by it. And some of them started doing the same. That's awesome. Um, and so, and then a- another thing is that a lot of well, some academics, I shouldn't say a lot, but some academics have this fear of looking ignorant in front of their students. And so if a student asks them a question, I actually... I was on the receiving end of this when I was a student. I I challenged something a professor said. I wasn't trying to be a dick, but that's how he took it. And he mm. like shot me down and gave me a D minus on my first exam. Mm. Um, I mean, it was just brutal. And yeah. so I'm very open with my students about like, oh, that's a good question. And I don't have the slightest fucking, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, maybe not that, maybe not quite that sort of lackadaisical, <laughs> but like, let me chew on that for a little bit. Yes, Let's yes. Chew on it together. I don't have the best answer, but this is kind of a provisional answer. And I'll think about it more and I'll come back maybe with a better answer next time. Yeah. Um, and I've actually told students years later, you know, that question that you asked me it was instrumental in mm. opening some new pathway of thought that I hadn't considered before. Yeah. And now it, it factors into the lectures that I that I give on that mm-hmm, figure. And mm-hmm. so I think that those moves, the, anything that you can do, and I understand that it's 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 you know, you have to take into consideration that I am a white male and you know, persons of color who are teaching or women who are teaching are in, in different situations and and you know, they already feel sort of like that hierarchy is is in question. Right. Their authority is in question. So I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to say that this is what everyone should do or it's the right move for everyone. But but that is something that I have done that's been that's been mm-hmm. very, very helpful, I think, uh, to helping me blow my I mean, you know, it sounds kind of cliche, but like I like to blow minds. I like yeah. to, oh. I like to make them <laughs> I like to make them see the world in yeah. or at least question the world in ways yes. that they've never thought about before. Because those were the moments as a student, it, both in high school and in, in college, those were the moments that that stick with me that yeah, it's like yeah. when something 
changed the way that I yeah. thought, or at least right. at least <laughs> opened a pathway. Even if, and something else that I've come to understand is that we don't always, you know, what we're looking for is a come to Jesus moment there in the classroom where the students like, oh yeah, I see everything. But that doesn't often happen. What happens right. is what happens is you plant a little seed, and then years later. So like I had this student who I'm still friends with. He lives about 40 minutes away. He's getting married in April and invited me to his his wedding, and we still have dinner once in a while. And um, when he and I met, he was like a he was uh you know a right wing not hard not a trumpster guy but but you know a classical conservative guy yeah, and yeah. uh and definitely a christian which i think he still is a christian but he was in that mode of the sort of you know the sort of traditional conservative mold mm-hmm. and we had lots and lots of conversations and it was never about me trying to change his mind or anything like that but it was like we would bring our our points mm-hmm. to bear on each other you know and so we were having lunch a year or so ago and i found out that he's like he's like this this radical commie now and it's like that that didn't happen when he was you know when when he was in high school but you know the conversations not just with me i'm sure but like they planted enough of those seeds Mm -hmm. that you know it changed the way that he thought and when he got out of college and then trump was elected and he was like oh this is this is clearly you know he saw then that this was like the sort of logical outcome of 20 30 40 years of reaganism and and conservatism in america and he was like yeah this is not this is not for me. And all of those conversations sort of came back. And so I like planting those seeds and that's something else is it because what it does is it, it takes the pressure off me in a certain sense, because it's not like I have to, I have to win this point. It's just like, man, we're just, we're just, we're we're just bros. We're just having a conversation here. And, Mm -hmm. and I see, I see where you're coming from because I came from there too, man. Mm -hmm. You know, I was there, I was a hundred percent there when I was 21 years old. Right. And so I see it. I see where you're coming from. And we're just having a conversation. And so I don't feel like I have to win. It's not like I have to, you know, win the point. Yeah, it's just, yeah. We're just we're enriching each other. And, uh, yeah. you know, I come away changed and hopefully you'll come away changed too. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's a, it's a very long winded answer to sort of my pedagogical. I'll give you a, a moment to let us respond. Because uh, <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way. There's a lot there. But one of the things I liked is Cooper and I, you know, we've, we've been, this past year, we did a lot of psychoanalysis. We had some authors on psychoanalysis on. And one of the things that I like is this notion that you don't always have to speak from a master's discourse, from a university discourse, where you're not necessarily, it's not necessarily like, as you said, trying to win or even trying to impart some body of knowledge, yeah. right? That the moments for you, like you said, when you made that decision to be vulnerable, you were able to show right? That the, it's not that the emperor has no clothes, but that you're not always speaking from the position of mastery and from the position of some sort of unified body of knowledge. You are an actual human being. As you said, that that, that decision paid off. Um, and I guess I'll let Cooper respond too, but I like that notion where when I, the little bit of teaching I got to do in high school as a grad student, you know, I learned in my own ways that, you know, obviously there are minimum hierarchies, but at a certain point you do have to, you do have to let the students know that you don't necessarily know everything. Like you said, let's, let's think about this. I'll get back to you. Uh, And hopefully, you know, the question, as you said, some of those questions do even force you to rethink your, your own position. And I guess that's, that's kind of, I mean, like, I'm thinking about it. One of the ethical positions that Deleuze gets into in Difference Repetition, sometimes it's not always uh, talked about, but I love it, is this notion that it's not about knowledge. 
this emphasis on knowledge, like with Hegel, for example, mm-hmm. actually does a disservice to, to what is essential, which is learning. And that learning is, is an unconscious process. And it's not necessarily something that one does by oneself, right? Yeah. You know, in, in terms of mastery. And that the best teachers are those who are kind of like learning with you and not necessarily talking down to you and giving you all the answers. This need to play the subject supposed to know, like as Lacan would yeah. say, is actually detrimental to the, the process of learning. I think, anyway. that's, I think that's right. And I also think it's bled so much into the way that we think about education and higher education in the United mm-hmm. States that that's mm-hmm. what it is. It's just there's test taking, for example, the yeah, test taking test. that I'm just unscrewing the, the top of your head and pouring in some stuff and mm-hmm. screwing the thing back on and kicking you in the ass and sending you on your way. <laughs> but if that's, you know, it is such a disservice because you're right. I mean, so much of the learning that I hope that my students do comes after they graduate, right? And what mm-hmm. we've really done is we've sort of given them the tools to learn how to learn. Yes. And, you know, if you start at 22 with those tools, then you've still got a lifetime of work ahead of yep. you on the process of learning. So this idea that it's just pouring contents into an empty head or something mm-hmm. like that is just so, 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 so bad. Yep, yep. <laughs> Coop, did you did you have something you you wanted to say? Oh, yeah. I saw you over there, like quite a bit, actually. Yeah, good. And, I mean, first of all, I just want to say, Vernon. I mean, hearing you just talk with passion about teaching and and bringing you know those mind blowing experiences to students is is fucking very inspiring. I mean, that's oh, well, fucking you. awesome. Your passion comes through in your earnestness and that like vulnerability, and I think that is so important. I think it's very important to what Taylor and I try to achieve on the podcast is. You know, and it's not always easy to do. You like we can't always, you know, bring it there. But you know, sort of as much as we can, I think we try to try to do that. And so I think you're definitely on to something in displaying that vulnerable approach. And like I call it to go back to Sterner, it's like it's intercourse. It's not discourse. Mm. It's intercourse. Yeah. So there's a reciprocal. There was a reciprocal participatory style that I think is the really is the best way to approach this type of material. And I mean, like. Like I gave the story earlier in the podcast about my experience in my intro to sociology class where like it's that moment and you're fu- you're absolutely fucking right that here I am like, you know, I was 18 years old and I'm like, it's 21 years later and I'm still fucking on that same, you know what I mean? I'm still yeah. learning. I'm still mm-hmm. following that same trajectory. So just, you know, fucking big ups to you, man, for being a fucking awesome real teacher that cares and takes it, you know, takes it seriously and, you know, is willing to be vulnerable about what they don't know. And I think those are the best teachers, man. So fucking mad respect for you. And thank you very much. I I just taught Dostoevsky again for the, for the third time and students take this class right now. It it fulfills the requirement. One of the curricular requirements called integrative thinking, because it's got, Mm. you know, it's, it's literature, but we also read a lot of philosophy and Mm -hmm. uh, some Nietzsche and stuff along with it. And um, it's so awesome because students take it, to fulfill some abstract curricular requirement that they right. don't give a fuck about. But then they end up like on their evals saying, oh my God, this was like, this changed my life. And, and it's funny because like Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky is like a, he's like a radical Christian thinker. And, and I'm, I guess I consider myself an atheist and yet his version of Christianity is one that I, I can almost get behind. It's yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's when you have a thinker like that, who resonates so effectively with persons of all different kinds of belief, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all different nodes on the belief spectrum. It's really, it's really 
it's, it's really amazing. And uh, I had a student one time and she told me afterwards who she was, but she, on her eval, she wrote, I've become slightly more convinced by the project of Christianity. And sometimes when I'm like talking in the class, I'm like, dude, you have to understand, I am not proselytizing here. I'm not like, I'm right. an atheist. I, I, I come right yeah. out and say that, but like this God is love. Fuck, I can get behind that. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. That's awesome. You know, when you think through the ontological implications of what that means, if you, if you take that really seriously, but I had some students who, who left the class and on their evals wrote, I believe this should be a required course for every Gettysburg student because it's just <laughs> that transformative. And it makes me cry. I mean, I, I tear yeah, up. I mean, it's yeah. just like, that's awesome. When you, when you know that some student took this class, not, you know, for no other reason than a curricular requirement. And then it ended up really, you know, having a deep and lasting impact in their lives. And that they're going to probably come back to these texts over the course Mm -hmm. of their life when they're in their own moments of crises and and transformation and metamorphosis and stuff. So yeah, that's the best reward. Speaking of Husserl, my first introduction to philosophy, the first time I I read it was before the, before the English class, the practical criticism class, Uh, it was an existentialism class. Oh yeah. Now it would, but that's taken very broadly because we read, we read Kierkegaard, we read Dostoevsky, the notes from underground. We read Nietzsche beyond good and evil. I think Mm -hmm. that was when I got Nietzsche pilled. But one thing I remember, the professor was a Husserl scholar. We didn't read any Husserl. And I think one of my papers, I used the word intersubjectivity, and she wrote <laughs> one of the most brutal. I probably still made like an A minus on the paper, so I'm not like. But she wrote some comment where, like, don't use this word if you don't know what it means. <laughs> and I remember that comment. Out of all, like, out of all the the positive and negative comments I've gotten, uh, uh, and constructive comments. Uh, that one is maybe because it's kind of still a mystery to me that the, what she was thinking yeah. when she wrote that. But later, as I learned, I mean, this this may uh, this is my this is my excuse for uh, for never really understanding Husserl because I always had that Husserl professor that that told me that uh, I didn't know what <laughs> intersubjectivity uh, means. Yeah, and uh, gotcha. no, no, I'm I'm kidding. But actually, she was a she was a really good teacher, and uh, Dostoevsky was transformative you know, existentialism broadly. I mean, like we read what is existentialism as a humanism. We yeah. read that that essay, which, you know, for its problems or whatever, the notion that we don't have, what does he say? We don't have a final cause, right? Or or is it we don't have an efficient cause? I, I always, Something like that. Yeah, we, we're not tools, right? We're, you yeah. know, our, our existence precedes our essence. That kind of thing is what got me is why I'm still doing the stuff I'm, I'm doing today, you know? Yeah. So I, I have, I have a moment kind of like Coop where it's like, you know, that moment in class, maybe it wasn't as instantaneous like that or as a Eureka moment, but like slowly through that class, the notion that as you kind of put it with Nietzsche, I didn't know that questions like these could or were being asked. And that inspires you to, to start asking those questions, right? You know, and to start giving oneself the, um, I always think about it like this. I always, when I, when I talk to friends who don't have the Christian backgrounds that we do, I kind of say the kind of questions that philosophy, the, the philosophy I enjoy at least is asking are the kind of questions that I would have thought growing up would, even just asking the questions would get me going to hell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be like blasphemous things, right? Uh, But even this thing about like my existence preceding my essence, that the implications of that alone can lead one to 
I don't want to call it radical doubt, but it can lead one to the point where you're starting to you're starting to play with fire, right? You are yeah. starting to threaten all the received knowledge, right? All of the I remember there was a moment in church where we were there was something we were reading. It was actually something that Jesus said, and I and I don't I, I can only paraphrase it, but it was something like, if you have lust in your heart, it's basically the same as having committed the sin itself, right? So mm-hmm. So even entertaining these ideas, whether it be about the Antichrist or, you know, about existence preceding essence, that, I mean, if you follow Jesus's word, you are, you know, when you when you do philosophy that isn't theology, uh, that isn't an apology for Christianity, to a certain extent, are, are you not, do you not have a kind of lust in your heart, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I don't know that I, well, no, I'm sure I had because it's like, like you said, it's like you you weren't even aware that it was possible to ask these sorts of questions or that that uh, it was possible to think these sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. And then once <laughs> once it's there, once that possibility is planted, then the you know the sort of well raised Protestant in you is kind of like, oh no, but I can't, I can't, yeah. you know, I can't think that. I used to say this when I was teaching when I would teach intro to philosophy. I would sort of say, you know, it's one of the things that makes philosophy one of the sort of reviled disciplines in the academy is that we ask questions. And yep. and the, the truth of the matter is questions are dangerous. You know, Deleuze has that line in, in Nietzschean philosophy about how a philosophy that saddens no one, that upsets no one is right. a worthless philosophy, right? And it's like, it's, it's not worth the name. And um, yeah, it's once the question is there, then you find yourself asking another question and, mm-hmm. and another question, another question. And eventually you're either going to have to go down the rabbit hole or you're going to have to cut it off somewhere and yeah, say, take, take the blue pill, right? Yep, you know, yep, at some point, that's right. Have, at some point yeah. you have to take the blue pill. And even in, you know, I used to have these conversations when I was sort of wrestling with doubt, you know, before my break with the church, I would meet with ministers sometimes and mm-hmm. really sort of press them on things. And eventually it didn't matter how intelligent, because some of them were super, super intelligent. It didn't matter mm-hmm. how intelligent they were. At some point, they would say, well, yeah, here's where you got to take the blue pill, right? Yep. There are things that we just, we can't provide the answers to, right? right. And uh, and so you just have to go on faith here. And, and yep. yeah, it's a really interesting and, you know, asking questions is, Nietzsche has that line in the genealogy of morality that it takes a certain kind of cruelty to oneself mm. to be willing to ask because eventually you're, you're calling into question the very things that make you who you who think you are. You are. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. So you're calling into question your very identity. In the intro lecture, I used to say it's kind of like you're it's kind of like you're looking over a precipice and that you don't know where the bottom is. And yep. at some point, you either make the choice to sort of walk back down the path or you you leap. And if you leap, you don't know where you're going to end up. Mm-hmm. And it's scary. Can be. <laughs> well, uh, Coop, did you have a... a- a response or did you also have that moment is it was that the moment was it the same moment when you started uh allowing yourself to ask questions was it was it when you had that moment in sociology class or uh that was a moment that stands out i think in my life as a sort of singularity but i think Mm -hmm. even before then like i was questioning and i was always interested in in ideas and philosophy just even from being a kid for whatever reason i don't know why the space and like openness of being on a cattle ranch or something mm-hmm. perhaps was a part it of could, it. I mean, it could make one reflective. I mean, I get reflective when I'm standing outside at night and looking at the sky and, yeah. mm-hmm. 
I've tweeted about this a few times, but like we live outside of town now and uh, our community, there aren't a lot of streetlights. So there's not a lot of light pollution. And, and so great. when you're standing outside at night, it's like most nights, unless it's really cloudy, it's the sky is just magnificent. And yeah. I don't know, it, it can make a person contemplative and reflective and ask questions, I think. I mean, Plato says what philosophy begins in wonder. And there's always this story that I'm not sure if I'm getting it right, but like that Thales fell into a ditch because oh, yeah. he was looking at the at the stars. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, that's right. It's, that's right. It's a great it's a kind of a great apocryphal or not or whatever, but it's a, it's a kind of a great encapsulation of what it means to like wonder because yeah. you're you're going to fall into a ditch, but it's worth it somehow, right? To to do that. You said yeah. something uh this quote, have you thought about this notion about the Deleuze quote that you brought up about a philosophy that saddens no one? Obviously <laughs> yeah. it's a it's often kind of cited without necessarily being brought into into this notion like you lay out where Deleuze has a positive philosophy and obviously right. a, a philosophy of affirmation. The way I try to understand it when I was reading your book, because I was thinking about it, was we mentioned Heidegger's substantialism, how he mm-hmm. tries to make a substantial out of the will to power. And, and obviously Deleuze doesn't agree with that. And I wonder if this notion about a philosophy that saddens no one is kind of linked to this argument he makes that will to power is not about amassing gathering power. It's not about getting power. It's kind of like the, the pouvoir, puissance difference. So I guess that, that would be my question is, what's the affirmative aspect of um, this question about saddening? That yeah, yeah, yeah. Needs? It's a good question. I, po- I posted that quote on Twitter once and Peter Gratton, I don't know if you've ever had him on the show, but he's a, he's a Derrida scholar. Okay, okay. That's, that's a bit reductive. He's, he's more than that. But, but, you know, he said something like, oh, that makes me feel really good or <laughs> that makes uh, me, how, how happy I am after reading this or something like this. It's been a couple of years ago, but, but yeah, you know, when you take it out of context, I guess it does sort of have that, you know, Oh, philosophy is supposed to sadden. And it's like, well, uh, yeah, but you got to understand what, what's kind of the going context. On yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring it to this notion of power and the and consolidation and substantialization of power, because I think in a certain sense, Deleuze does see philosophy as affirmative and he does see it as joyful and he sees it as Mm -hmm. in a sense almost ecstatic i mean there's that line about the philosopher you know what's he say follows the this is what is philosophy the dng book but you know the philosopher follows the witch's flight and returns with bloodshot eyes or something like this it's 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 almost an ecstatic you know experience i take that's in relation to spinoza right i think something like that ah that Um, could be but yeah go ahead go on because i I was good I'm sorry. I, I I can't help but think of Spinoza here when Deleuze is talking about a philosophy that saddens no one. Yeah. Um, so th- I think what that means is that he sees philosophy's, you know, raison d'etre to be dismantling power and dismantling the status quo. There's mm-hmm. that line in Difference and Repetition where he talks about you know, philosophy's essential task is disrupting the doxa. And I actually bring that up in the book too, yes, because yes. I think in a certain sense, that's Plato is all about that, right? We're disrupting the doxa. Mm-hmm. And one of his his gripes about Hegel is he thinks that Hegel at the end of the day, just re-establishes the authority of the church, of the state, of all mm-hmm. of the institutions of power that Deleuze is trying to sort of, you know, go after. And so the people who are supposed to be sad are, I think, are the are the institutions themselves. I mean, it's it's like, mm. this is, we talked a moment ago about how 
questioning leads you to these precipices and these these moments of you know transformation, right? But it's scary, and I think that's the saddening side. Is you know it's supposed to upset, it's supposed yeah. to disrupt the status quo, disrupt the institutions of power and the consolidations of power and the consolidations of capital, say. And if it's not doing that, if it's just reasserting on the back end of some argumentative acrobatics, you know, the sanctity of those institutions, then it's it's worthless. So yeah, that's the saddening element. The the joyful element is that there's something, you know, that this is fundamentally freeing and liberating. And yeah. Uh, so yeah, I hope that answers answers. No, I, it's actually really good. And it reminds me of what you said, because I'm still chewing on it, uh, to use your phrase, the Nietzsche point about we have to also be able to be cruel to ourselves. Yeah, There's a sense in which we, you know, when Deleuze kind of says in the eternal return, the I, the world, self world, God, and, God self world yeah. and God, like, God, self they, and world, yeah. like they're not, you know, they're not coming back, right? <laughs> like yeah. the eternal yeah. return, at least their identities. Yeah. Right? And so we have to be able to Maybe Derrida would even say we have to be able to mourn the loss of our ourselves, the loss of the identity of the world and God as a guarantor of these identities. We have to be able to mourn those in order to take that leap. Otherwise, yeah. we if we don't, if we shirk or if that work of mourning is is something that we can't do and we have to cling to the identical or, or we have to, in a certain way, become reactive. Right. So maybe that's, yeah. that's a way too you, you kind of work through this logic that what happens to reactive forces in the eternal return is they are kind of turned back against themselves. Maybe when Deleuze is talking about a philosophy that doesn't sadden, he's talking about reactive forces in oh, the eternal that's return, right? Yeah. Having to, having to face themselves. It's, you have to go through it, but yeah. at a certain point there's this deeper nihilism, maybe not in Baudrillard's sense, because Baudrillard, I think would be more like Derrida, right? It's like, can't be negative enough, you know? And I think with Deleuze and with Nietzsche, the way at least I read Nietzsche, um, not to disparage Derrida's reading, but this notion that like when he's reading about, when he's talking about Socrates, Socrates is going to give a, a rooster to Asclepius, right? Yeah. It, that whole meditation about judging life and, and how uh, that's a symptom itself of a, a certain type of life. That's kind of how I've tried to read this notion about, because I've had, I've had friends ask me, you know, what does Deleuze mean when he says a philosophy that doesn't sadden, right? Because they obviously have heard that he's an affirmationist and all that. And yeah. I think that you're right. It has to be about power. It has to be about reactive forces. Otherwise, it, it's contradictory to Deleuze's fundamental yeah. Pro project. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought up Spinoza. And that's an interesting connection, too, because I've gotten a lot more interested in Spinoza in the last eight or nine years. And I remember when I first read Spinoza, I hated him. And I hated him <laughs> prim primarily because, you know, I was used to reading Nietzsche, right? Mm -hmm. And then you you get to Spinoza and, and Nietzsche is just like one bomb after another, right? And, and he doesn't care always about consistency or anything like mm -hmm. that. He's just sort of, you know, chewing on an idea where Spinoza is like, okay, proposition, you know, definitions, axioms, proposition one. Yeah. And I just, I didn't. One brick at a time, right? Yeah. One, one brick at a time. It's, and so I hated the sort of the rigidity of it or the, yes. the apparent rigidity of it. But then I also think that part of what made me hate it was that my professor who was teaching it hated it. <laughs> no, <laughs> he was okay. A, <laughs> he was a Humean and, uh, and he just absolutely detested Spinoza. Mm. And I actually, I, I kind of think there are more resonances between Spinoza and Hume than he maybe thought, but, but at any 
was repressing he, it. He was repressing yeah, it. He hated Spinoza. And so when I read, you know, that quote from Deleuze where he's like, it's it's like a breath of wind at my back or some Spinoza is like a breath of wind at my back or something like this. And I was just like, what the fuck is he talking? How is this the same Spinoza that I was reading? But, you know, I read it, I reread it in grad school and then it like started to hit me and it started mm-hmm. to sort of sink in just how, how powerful Spinoza is and how, um, you know, what Deleuze is essentially doing is sort of, you know, taking that emphasis on affirmation, I think largely from Spinoza and, um, and, where was I going with this? I was going someplace with this, some someplace interesting. Oh, but you get get that line in the ethics where Spinoza says, you know, the free man thinks of nothing less than of death, yes. right? And so when you contrast that with, you know, some of the tendencies in Derrida and in yeah. Heidegger, for instance, I mean, you can really see clearly the way in which Spinoza Spinoza influences Deleuze far more than than he does Derrida, and mm-hmm. and Hegel sort of influences Derrida far more than he does Deleuze. And so there was, I initially had, you know, the vague intention of, you know, ending the book with something like, so it comes down to Mascheret's question, Hegel or Spinoza, because in a sense, they're both giving us these totalizing ontologies, but one has got the sort of the negativity sort of woven into it as a fundamental and constitutive element, where for Spinoza, the negativity is is something separate. And and what philosophy is about is, is freeing us, right? And, right? and that freedom, with that freedom comes affirmation. And so, you know, I think that the the saddening part is the disruption of the, you know, the stuff that wants to hang on to hang on to power. Coop, you're probably sick of me talking about it, but I'm always bringing this back to Guattari's notion of doses of the institutional death drive, right? They quote Nietzsche in uh, Anti-Oedipus where, you know, they're talking about the death drive institutionally as the only thing that can kind of allow for creativity in these institutions that want to hang on to power, as you were uh-huh. saying, and want yeah. to consolidate. And they, it's uh, churches, army states, which of these dogs wants to die, right? That's, <laughs> that's their Nietzsche quote when, when they talk about, it's, I guess I always come back to it because, you know, the death drive, right, is is one of those terms. And this we talked about this yeah. last week, but it's one of those terms that um, is interpreted almost an infinite number of ways yeah and it's and there's no one way so so Guattari's way of kind of uh and you could see this in his life and the way he dealt with institutions and there was all always these formations and even in his collaboration with Deleuze and Guattari right that they eventually allowed themselves to dissolve to be able to create and go their own ways yeah so I guess that's kind of how I I, I think of it too um is is perhaps this philosophy saddening is is um this is why I think it's Guattari's notion and not Deleuze's this notion of a creative death drive, right? Of allowing for a little bit of what Simondo might call metastability in uh-huh. institutions that that want to seek homeostasis and, and stability. And I think that that's where it's interesting because because Derrida is saying Hegel's system actually is not metastable enough. It needs to be able to hang on to negativity and not cancel it out. And I think that Deleuze understands metastability more in a scientific, maybe metaphoric way, where its its intensities don't necessarily, uh, on the body without organs, right, intensities are all positive. If waves collapse and cancel each other out, it's not in a sense of a negative, right? I, mm-hmm. I guess that's, that's, that's where... You do spend a lot of time talking about that, though, in the book, this question of intensity for Deleuze. Yeah. And, yeah. and is there... Is it possible Derrida understands that in a different way or does he even discuss or would he think that that would be just a kind of philosophical appropriation of a scientific term, you know, like 
I could imagine Badu saying something like that to Deleuze. So like when you reduce everything to the eternal alternative intensities, you're you're just using a scientific metaphor. You know, I, I wonder if yeah, it's uh, a good question. This is something actually you mentioned in one of our correspondences talking about future work. And I, I yes, good. am interested in unpacking more what Deleuze means by intensity, because it is sort of the element. I mean that in the, the technical sense, it's, it is kind of the difference in itself in mm-hmm. difference in repetition. And I think that that's not something I think changes with any of his later work, even though yeah. it may not come up in explicit terms. Like I don't know that it comes up much in the logic of sense, but it's there, even if it's not there, it's there. Yeah. And um, so he does a little bit of, of work with, you know, trying, it's an implicated multiplicity, uh, an enfolded multiplicity. I use some metaphors to try to think about what that might look like. I do want to unpack that more in a more, a more thorough way and understand what it means. And I do think that Derrida, this is something I do with the, when I'm talking about the the way that difference manifests for Derrida, I sort of make this argument, and I don't know if I'm <laughs> if I'm justified in making it or not, but that when Derrida says that concept creation can only ever be either or, right? Mm-hmm. And concepts, of course, rest upon the the differential play of the difference. And you know, each, you know, I talk about the, the each concept is the trace of the other and it right. mirrors the other and all of the stuff. The interesting thing about the, if you make the claim that concepts can only ever be either or, then it seems to me like that differential play is only ever thought as oppositional, as almost binarity in nascence or something like this. And that's not the way that Deleuze thinks of, of intensity. And so that is a pretty a pretty important difference between them. And I think it's it's why you see the that Deleuze is perfectly fine with making these new concepts because he, yes. he understands the way that their components work differently than the way that Derrida understands them. And to your point about the death drive too, that's it's really interesting. And I was, I'm always sort of puzzled by these pages and difference in repetition in chapter two when he's talking about the death drive, because he does talk about it there, but he has a, a kind of different spin. And if I understand, and I, I don't necessarily know that I do. But if I understand what he's doing there in chapter two of Difference of Repetition, where he's talking about his own sort of spin on the death drive, it might be very close to what Guattari means that you're talking Mm -hmm. about, in that it sort of seems like he mobilizes the death drive as a sort of secondary drive, almost in in the service of Eros, in the service of life, because you have to have a certain affinity with or a mobilization of the death drive in order to slough off what you no longer need, right? Yes. yes. And so the forming of new assemblages, for instance, requires mm-hmm. a willingness to break with the old. And and so it's there, but it plays a sort of secondary role in mm-hmm. the sense that, you know, the whole purpose of it is, you know, affirmation is new assemblage, new, you know, new possibilities for life and all of this stuff. But in order to have that, you have to have this willingness to slough off what you no longer need or what's no longer beneficial. And I think that there is a sense in which you could find that in Spinoza as well, because he talks about the ways in which bodies form alliances with other bodies for, you know, reciprocal mobilization and benefit and so forth. And that those, you know, especially in the political stuff and the 
political treatise and theological political treatise, you know, he talks about political alliances and how those are only as effective as they are useful to the participants. And as soon as they become no longer useful to the participants, then he's like, you know, you'd have to be stupid to continue in this right. in this alliance for the sake of continuing in this alliance, right? You continue in this alliance only insofar as it's beneficial to you and the other person continues in this alliance only insofar as it's beneficial to them. And so there is a certain element of the death component there too, that might actually be pretty close to what Guattari is, what you mentioned in Guattari. And certainly it's, I think I see it coming out in Anti-Oedipus. Coop, did you, I don't want to dominate <laughs> the the conversation as I, I often would just, do. I would just encourage you guys to take a look at the Dune series because especially like books three and four are very much, I think, following along with this kind of dialogue between sort of more Deleuzian concepts and, and Hegel. And particularly like in the figure of the god emperor, like the despot who brings about like this open infinity. Like it's about like the scattering of humanity is a, the flattening, like the spreading of humanity is the way to keep it robust and like mm. alive. I know there's it's almost like a vitalist revolution, but it's I don't know. It's, you know, Herbert kind of has this Roman Catholic background that he misses mixes with later became a Buddhist. So, oh, interesting. There's a certain like clash of western and eastern relationship relative to i guess oh interesting negativity and like the body without organs etc that's quite fascinating because he to me the most compelling aspect of the series itself is its materialist understanding of history and the way that change moves through the body without organs in particular or the you know like if you wanted to go hegelian like you could totally see the way that history moves there too mm. you know depending on which framework you'd want to go to it, which is what I find super compelling. And even within what, you know, you mentioned liking the new villain away film. When we covered a section of uh, anti-Oedipus, I was like, oh man, this is lining up perfectly because it's sort of very anthropological, historical, materialist approach to like, you know, alliance, filiation, tribalism, the offspring, succession, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that's cool. So Coop, do you like all of the books, because I've seen some people who are like, oh, Herbert should have stopped after the first one and the rest kind of suck. Do you, sounds like you like them all. I like mostly the first three to four. And okay. then the last two are kind of, uh, they're, they're not okay. bad, but they step back. So like, it's kind of interesting. The first book is, the first book is like, you know, it's gangbusters. It's, it's really tight. It's great. It's epic. It's more of a, it, well, it has some philosophy. It's more of an action, and then the the philosophy takes a second stage to a to a degree, right? And then it sort of ramps up until he hits the fourth book, which is kind of the crescendo, and then he comes back around and it's a little bit more action based, while he'll still pick up on some philosophical stuff. But like, there's so much to do with this figure of Duncan Idaho and like this series and repetition. I mean, it'd be really cool to look at and like, I don't know, it might kind of help. I don't know about you guys, but whenever I encounter whether it be a text, movie, song, whatever, like whatever textual thing, like it can send me on a line of flight. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just in the motion of whatever, you know, a particle flies off and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to follow that. So that's all I have. To Absolutely. Say about that, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We've talked yeah. about some of your uh, current projects and future projects. Is there, do we want to start uh do we want to wrap up? Yeah, I, I know wanna... we've been about two hours of actual like recording. Yeah, time. and I was a little bit late, which, yeah, which yeah. is my. I don't think again, we started until like two hours ago, but uh, right. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm sure you know, two hours it always feels like a like a nice <laughs> round point. Was is there anything um, else you are? You told us one of your ideas about in, in, intensity, wanting to 
to, to look at that more. Do you have any other um, projects you're working on now or? Um, so, yeah, I yeah. am actually, I'm writing a book for Wipfenstock called Reading Deleuze. Okay. And so it's, I don't know if you know Wipfenstock very well. I, I didn't until I met them at the APA. It's actually pretty funny because I was, you know, at the APA, they, that's the American Philosophical Association Conference, if anyone doesn't know, but uh, they got the tables, right? With the books all set up. Yes. And, stuff. And, and I saw, I think it was a book by Etienne Gilson okay. that had been out of print for like a long time. And it's one that I think Deleuze and Derrida like cite as uh, you know, as an important book. And, and I sort of looked for it and never found it. I think it was out of print, even maybe in French. And so I saw, I happened to see it on the table. I can't remember what it was called. It's probably around here someplace, but I saw it on the table and I was like, oh my God, this is coming out again. And, and so the guy, we struck up a conversation. He said, oh, I recognize you from Twitter. And I said, oh my God. Okay. So we started on this conversation. <laughs> nice. But anyway, he works for Wippenstock and Wippenstock has traditionally done these sort of theology textbooks and Ooh. these, uh, you know, like Christian living kinds of books, but they've gotten into through Kierkegaard, they've gotten into some philosophy stuff. Yeah. Philosophy pill through Kierkegaard. That's yeah, awesome. exactly. And so there's, there is one of these books called reading <laughs> Kierkegaard. And uh, so I thought, well, I'd like, I've always kind of wanted to do a, you know, an overview of, Deleuze's thinking for my own self. I mean, I'd like right. to, I'd like to sort of put him in perspective and try to see the arc of, of what he's doing. And um, so that book, I'm actually sort of focusing on this line, this little comment that he makes in the Italian preface to Logic of Sense, where he says something like, you know, the difference between this book and the and difference in repetition is the difference in repetition is a book about depths and the logic of sense is a book about surfaces. Right, right. And that that quote has always sort of stuck with me because a lot of times, and i I'm guilty of this myself, you know, scholars will treat difference in repetition and logic of sense as as though they're kind of two parts of the same project. Because, right. you know, 68, 69, the ontological terms are very similar. He's still talking about the ideal game eternal return, you know, difference in itself, the event becomes more prominent in logic. Right, right. But, but, you know, you know, so difference of emphases, it, it's kind of like the Derrida Deleuze project. Is it a difference of emphases or is there something really interesting happening here? Some, some interesting change. And I'm kind of thinking that there is an interesting shift that's starting nice. to happen. And so I'm reading it through the lenses of, uh, it's actually subtitled from the depths to the surfaces. And awesome. um, I initially en envisioned it as a two volume project mm -hmm. where I was going to look at every single work of Deleuze's, but the publishers nixed that and said, uh, we can only justify a one book project. And I said, okay, so I, I got to think about it a little differently and, and sort of look at these moments in Deleuze's, in Deleuze's project. And I'm sort of doing it as, um, I'm treating it as Deleuze in assemblage from start to finish in the sense mm -hmm. that I'm going to focus on Deleuze and Nietzsche, Deleuze and Spinoza, difference in repetition, logic of sense, Deleuze and Guattari. And then what's really interesting to me is I think that, you know, Dan Smith has this paper called Back into the Depth, where he, he takes that quote from the Italian preface and then says, but anti-Oedipus is a return to the depths. Mm -hmm. And my, my thinking is, and I'm not sure this is what I'm going to have to sort of tease out, but my thinking is that even though it's a return to the depths, it's a reconceived version of the depths. Once he gets to the, the level of the surface, and I think of the surface as the sort of membrane, right? That mm -hmm. that separates maybe, you know, that, that separates the, the eye from the other or the eye from the world or something like that. Indifference and repetition is really focused on the sort of constitution of subjectivity. And mm -hmm. so in that sense, it is dwelling in the depths. But once you get to the logic of sense, you're you're at the, the surface where language emerges from the body, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that once he starts thinking the surface, then everything that sort of comes after, even the depths are reconceived as an mm. implicated surface is what I, is where That's I awesome. think it's, 
is going now. But the book is supposed to be a a guide. Well, it's supposed to be a guide for me, honestly, and for people who are approaching Deleuze for the first time and Excellent. reading Deleuze for the first time, and maybe even teaching Deleuze for the first time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think it's, you know, I said at the beginning of this that I feel I don't always sound very smart when I <laughs> when I talk, <laughs> and it's true. I I feel like I, I talk differently than a lot of of um, you know academics and stuff, and it's some of it's my country background. I, I, I don't know, but but that's got it's a blessing and a curse because on the other hand, I think I write in a way that people find relatable. And I've, yeah. I've some of the best compliments I've gotten. I got an email from somebody out of the blue in Detroit who was like a blue collar. You know, I think he worked in auto factory his entire life. He's like sixty five now and retired. Always interested in philosophy. He's gotten interested in postmodernism, and he picked up my book. And he said, "And I just want to thank you for writing a book that I could understand." And and I didn't feel like you were talking down to the yes. reader. And I I thought well, that's you know I don't. It's not something I do intentionally. It's really just me trying to make sense of this stuff. Right. And, and, and make it make sense for myself. But but that's I, I think that is one of the upsides to the way that I write is that I want it to be crystal clear to myself. And in so doing, I'm making it crystal clear or as, as crystal clear as it can be to the reader as well. And so that's what I want to do with Deleuze, both for myself, because I'm going to be honest, there's still a lot of Deleuze that I just yes. don't don't understand. And yep. so a lot of it is me wanting to understand him and try to understand his arc and then maybe mm-hmm. figure out how that's going to situate me going forward. That's actually, I, I love that project description because it's it's not only going to help you, obviously it will help you in the future and give you a, a clear idea of, of where to go. And you're right. I mean, like, uh, especially anti-Oedipus, when, when Cooper and I are, are discussing <laughs> it, there are many times where I'm just like, I Honestly, I'm not. I don't really know. And some sometimes, sometimes like the uh, Klasowski, it can be because I haven't read one of the references. A lot of right. the a lot of the references haven't been translated, and I can't yeah. find. I would have to troll through a, a, a library, a university library, or, or interlibrary loan to be able to get. You know, so there's there's a lot of stuff that's still. That's part of the fun too, right? That not everything is already understood beforehand. Yeah. Like Hegel saying, if you understand the preface, you don't have to read the, <laughs> the rest of the phenomenology. There's still stuff that's um, to explore. And even stuff that that I've read and, and think I understand, when you go back through it, you start to go on those lines of flight. You start making yeah. these different connections where you realize that uh, you may have focused on one side of something you thought you knew and later you realize that it was uh that there are other facets that came out right yeah um so and i've always i've always translated because i wanted to understand and to make sure i understood it i had to have it in in clear i say clear clear enough english <laughs> and so i started translating as a kind of selfish thing you know because i wanted to have it but you know at a certain point you get the confidence to to share that and um yeah. And so I think this notion of, and I think even though there are a lot of books on Deleuze in English that may take on that role of being introductory, I don't think there's uh there's any superfluousness because there's so, there's so much, right? There's, you know, there's, and I like this idea of, of assembling Deleuze with other thinkers because to a certain extent you have to do that to begin, right? Yeah. To, to even begin to discuss what he's doing. I mean, that's even his project, you know, it's, his monographs kind of bear that out too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And to say just a quick word about those, some of those other introductory texts, and there are, and there are some really, really good ones. My approach is, so if you look at someone like who's Colebrook's got a couple, there's another one I'm 
spacing on right now, but most of them have this tendency and it's a perfectly justifiable tendency to like pick a theme and they'll say, you know, we're going to talk about Deleuze's ontology and we're going to talk about Deleuze's politics and we're going to talk about Deleuze and the arts or something like that. Perfectly justifiable approach. It's just not how I think. And I think in in terms of these, I think in terms of arcs and in terms of trajectories and things like Mm -hmm. this. And so I think mine is going to be kind of unique in that sense. And then I'm going to be looking at the beginnings of his project and how it evolves and what he's taking from each thinker. And again, that's not to disparage any of the, the stuff that's come before, uh, which I think is, is, is really good and it's helped me understand stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just, I have a different, my mind works a different way. And, and so, and this will also kind of, I hope, like I said, if someone's teaching Deleuze, I hope it will, it will kind of help them teach Deleuze. Frankly, I'm hoping it will help me teach Deleuze. <laughs> That is something that I think it's going to offer that's a little bit different than most of the most of the introductory texts that are out there on the market. This has been excellent, honestly. This has been great. I love when I look up and see how much time has passed, <laughs> and I, and it feels like it's only been half that, right? I feel yeah. like you know that's that's when I know that uh, I have enjoyed things, <laughs> and I agree with Coop too. I mean, especially when you when you talk about teach and the notion that you're you want to write a book so you can teach the subject better, that passion that yeah. comes through, it's very refreshing. And I, I think that it's something that I'm going to ask more of our interlocutors about is just stories about their teaching or how they feel about their teaching. Because honestly, that's that's something that can get lost. Like when yeah. we're doing the podcast, like we're just talking about these lofty thinkers or whatever. But no, I mean, it's it really is about the if you're not doing this with other humans, you know, it's if you're just a solipsist in, in your little cell, it lacks the life and the and the energy, you know. So it's a good I appreciate way to, this. It's a good way to incorporate a certain vulnerability to, I think, open up people's thoughts about their own <laughs> about their own teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We really appreciate having you as you make headway in your in your book and reading Deleuze. Perhaps later this year, we would love to have you back. I, I, I there's so many obviously questions that we we've scratched the surface on, and I know that um, that as you get deeper into writing that book, I, I, I'm definitely going to want to hear your thoughts about your investigation of these trajectories. Thank you so much. Yeah, I I've, this has been. I think I said this before, but this is my the first time I've done one of these, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I have no worries about doing one in the future now. So. Good. <laughs> You have nothing to worry about. Yeah, exactly. and, uh, reach out to Will, you know, and, yeah. and when you feel like it, when you make time for it. But these <laughs> kind of things are 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 fun. And, uh, you know, um, I think that Coop and I have more of a country accent than I don't even think you have an accent. Maybe yeah, you've I, lost I, I it. I couldn't since really you, notice much, honestly. <laughs> maybe you've lost it since you got, went to Gettysburg. But uh, don't worry about that mindset. You know, remember what the 65-year-old from Detroit kind of said, right? That, you know, there's a down-to-earthness that I think is is needed more than ever. It always has been needed in academia. And these things that seem like they're out of reach for people when they really aren't. And, you know, I, I think that Derrida, Deleuze, Hegel even, their styles may seem may seem like the kind of white noise at the beginning of an uh, of an album to ward off the casual listener, but really they even Hegel I would say, and I'm not yeah. a fan of reading Hegel. Even <laughs> right, Hegel right, right. has and is kind of talking to to everyone, right? Yeah. Philosophy should be for everyone, or it shouldn't be at all. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Ver, we're going to let you go. Uh, I know it's getting a little bit late. We'll let you sign off and then Cooper and I are going to talk shop. 
not talk about you behind your back, but <laughs> <Yeah>. just, <laughs> just this guy some, was a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, just just plant some stuff. But I, I really, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed your your work. I didn't even get to talk to you about Badu. So in the future, oh when yes, we, when we have you back on, we need to get uh, down to brass tacks about <laughs> Badu's awful book. I actually, uh, I think Zizek's book is is worse. You know, yeah. Badu's, Badu's is just kind of frustrating. But, yeah, uh, that, and, that's and, something to look forward to. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you guys awesome. so much. Thank you Thank so you, much. Brennan. We really enjoyed it, my friend. And uh, keep up what you're doing. It's it's amazing. It's inspiring work. Oh, I appreciate that very much. I really Absolutely. do. All right. Take care, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Including the ultimate form of security, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Lobotomized people, as in the block work orange.